say they like coast to coast, but on demand, raw and uncut interviews, and all without no ads. Once it's false and once that's true, and the rate you sink grows too. America, America is here for you. Stories from the listeners, they sent to Graham. He'll read them and be amazed, but Darren may say no. One says red and one says blue, but if it's false, it just won't do. America, America is here. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. Uh, we've got a big one later on. We've got Andrew Chestnut, PhD, David Metcalf, and good old Red Pill Junkie talking about Santa Muerte and death cults. And we got our old buddy from the original episode, Efrain, going to join us and talk about his ice spikes and maybe some retro Mars stuff. Yeah. But first, as always, Grand. I practice C SETI at night, Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? Hey, I'm doing well. I don't, I don't think we should say death cults. I don't know if it was, it's kind of like a, it's, a, it's Santa Marte. It's evolved from a death cult. Yeah, it's kind of more of a religion, I believe, but it's it kind of like they're worshiping cult. Saint Death as opposed to like a normal saint. Sounds like a death cult. And she's sort of known as the narco saint as well because. I better watch you know, it. You know, on, you don't want to be cursed or anything I don't, like that? Or I don't want any narcos showing up at my house. Yeah. You diss <laughs> Santa Murte. Dissing their goddess. <laughs> Have you heard of Santa Murte, Efrain, at all? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually like like a, a religious practice. And it's, it's not like a scary, bad thing. You know, it's like a party time type of thing. You know, like <laughs> Halloween, right? People dress up in, in skeleton outfits and, you know, and... Uh, you know, they have a, a certain saint, right? They have like a, a death saint or a skull saint or... But it's, it's not like a negative uh, vibe. No, know, but the, I think the media is sort of turning it into that, right? Because, oh. yeah, oh. yeah. So I think that's kind of that's kind of what the episode was about, really, is about what what is Santa Maria and the growth of it and, and how the media portrays it and, and that type of thing. Mm, no, so it's going to be interesting. Yeah. So where, where, because where were you? You're from uh, Central America, right? Are you? Well, no, no, well, I was born in New York City, but my family's from Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, okay. Yeah. New York City. I remember the first time we hooked up, I just fucking naturally assumed Ephraim was from New- in New York. Oh, uh-huh. in New York? Like, physically? Yeah, because uh, in our email correspondence, he had said something along the lines of, if we could handle his New York-Puerto Rican accent. <laughs> so I assumed he was in New York. Remember, we were fucking there waiting. Oh, waiting, oh yeah, that's waiting, the whole- And we, were, we assumed he was in Eastern time, and he was actually in... Pacific, so we waited for three hours, three time zones, wondering what might be happening. Yeah. That was our first episode. First and you think we would have learned about time zones after that, but I still messed up a couple after that. It's tough. Um, yeah. It's not something you're used to having to deal with. No, especially no, when some hours go forward and some go back. Like, 12, 10 different time zones. Yeah. <laughs> like the big ones are Australia, Europe, and fucking us, really. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, it seems like the toughest ones to juggle are the the east west ones because yeah. we were well yeah actually we were talking before the show how if it wasn't for booking the mars anomaly podcast we might america might not even be here 
Wow, well, that's, uh, I'm flattered. Because we were going to do a, we were never going to do interviews. We were just going to do three of us shooting the shit, which would have went terribly. <laughs> and probably wouldn't have went past would've 10 lasted. or 20 episodes. <laughs> right. And then when I was doing research for our first episode on Mars, we found your show. And we said, we should interview this guy. Yeah. And then we just said, we should just interview people all the time. We could interview whoever we want. Yeah, I think it went so well with Ephraim. We're like, we should just do this. Hey, well, you know, it went both ways because uh, being on your show has opened up, you know, my horizons and my exposure as well. You know, so. Yeah, it seems like your path kind of has been accelerated or something over the last couple of years. You've written the books and now you're doing this. You've got like, all these projects on CNN, the go. Getting name dropped on CNN. <laughs> I know, right? Watch out. <laughs> yeah. So we'll get into a little bit of your stuff uh, later on in the intro here before we, we start the, uh, the episode. Alrighty. So what do you got going on for us now, Darren? What do I have going on? What, <clears throat> mm-hmm. what do I ever have going on? What do you have going on for me? Well, you got a new jingle. Do you want to talk about that? I do, but I don't have it handy. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, you say something. Okay, so uh, this is an email from Neil. I think it's from the UK. Well, cheers to all the guys in the UK, all the people in the UK that are contacting UK's us. The UK's been like stepping up huge UK, with the yeah. donations. Maybe because we've been having reviews. more UK listeners and stuff. I don't know. I think it's just easier to get into the UK iTunes store because there's only like what? There can't be more no, than a few thousand people over there. that you think it is? That's not what it is. <laughs> That's what I think because we get you get a few reviews in the UK and it's like there's so many few few people there. I guess there's probably just so many people in Canada. I don't know how many people are in the UK. No, I, like I just eighty five million or hundred million. It's in it's, the yeah, UK. Yeah, yeah. Holy, I think fuck. so. They really pack them in there, eh? <laughs> I was just thinking about that because I want to. I'd love to go back it's there and like travel a, around because it's it, so like a small. Third but... of the size of Alberta. That's what I was saying. We should just fucking send one package a month with t-shirts to the UK and these guys can fucking meet up. <laughs> it can't be more. Oh, than it's only 64, 65 million, let's say. 64 million. How big a cross is it? Like, these guys could seriously meet up without, you know, and they'd all be Americans. They could have a beer. We'd save on shipping. Yeah, it's it's just, it's it's not as easy getting around there. It still takes you quite a while with all the roads. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, it just blows me away. Like I, I guess I'm just like I, I grew up driving across fucking Canada when I was in my teens. Right, so like when I was like 17, 18, I was driving across fucking Canada, Why? which is like forever. Oh. Well, I drove down to to Toronto, which is like that's not even across Canada. That's just across fucking Ontario, but yeah, it's like twenty two hour yeah. twenty two hour drive. Yeah, through all yeah. this fucking different shit, and then I did that after when I was. I want to say when I was 19, I drove out to Vancouver Island and back. Wow. I took two weeks and drove out to Vancouver Island and back. And that's like fucking long drive, man. Like you're talking probably like almost, I want to say it's 1,700 kilometers from here to Red Lake. So what is it from here to Vancouver? Another fucking 1,500K? No, maybe another... From here to Vancouver? Yeah, 1,000 yeah. to 1,100. 1,100. Yeah, so you're talking about 3,000 kilometers. Maybe even 900, but... Yeah. Three, it's about 3,000 kilometers. With the ferry and everything, maybe 3,200 kilometers. Wow. 6,400 round trip. Woo. And about... It's about... The first night, I drove straight through 18 hours to Calgary. Then stayed in Calgary for a bit. Then drove 12 hours to Vancouver. 
Or no, I think I drove first. I went 15 hours to Horseshoe Bay and jumped the ferry down in Imo. That was a good trip. Yeah. I drove, did you, you know what I So that would be like driving around the UK like 50 fucking times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought a car in Amsterdam and I drove to Athens. Like we bought this station, basically an old station wagon. It wasn't like a nice car, but instead of doing a train pass or instead of yeah. hitchhiking, we bought this shitty old Ford Taunus. Did you get drove it, it down you got, to Athens. Did you have to get insured and shit? Yeah, yeah, we had to do all that. Drove it down Dude, to Athens. Back in the fucking 60s, that shit was probably easy though. It wasn't the 60s, it was in the 90s. <laughs> and then we left it in Athens for three months on the dock. And I remember coming back and they said they were all flipping out the, the people on the dock and prayers. So like, this car's been here for three weeks. And then we're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> well, we'll drive it away now. <laughs> sorry for the, we got stuck out on the islands or whatever we said. I don't know, I was in Israel and, and Egypt at the time. And then... Uh, we drove it, so we it was there for three months, and then we drove it back up to Amsterdam through the Eastern Bloc, and it fucking barely made it. Like, it was in, on its last legs. It died in Amsterdam. It just oh, basically man. bought us, and we're going to just drive it into a canal and leave it Burn there. Burn it. <laughs> okay, I got the jingle. Oh, yeah, this was an email. I forgot. Sorry to get all sidetracked. So, <clears throat> this is, hey, Darren and Graham. I was tinkering in my audio wait, lab. Wait, 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 wait. What? Psychedelics are catalysts of consciousness. Oh, I love it. Wow. Sounds theatrical. I love it. I love Mm -hmm. it. I was tinkering in my audio lab the other day with some new gizmos and came up with a little trip report jingle for you guys. I combined it with a gong and a tribal throat sound intermingled with a ghostly sounding epic Terrence McKenna soundbite, of course. Well, how else could it be done? He says. Anyways, hope you like it and hope it's not too serious sounding. We love it. And and of course, thanks again for your amazing show. Still out there listening to every episode after a couple of years now. What you guys are doing is amazing. Thank you so much. Cheers as always from the UK, Neil. Oh, is that ever easy to? Uh... Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Neil. That sounds great. It reminds me of the last X Files episode that Darren hasn't watched yet. <laughs> Darren. Darren, don't spoil it. <laughs> you got to watch it so we can just talk yeah, about it. I'm looking forward to you talking, just talking to you about it. I'm a lollygagger and so are probably some of the listeners, so it's All better right. for me to... Okay, we won't talk about it. I'm a defense mechanism for the listeners. <laughs> I was put off by the... You know what I did finish watching the other day, which I had watched like the first few seasons of a long time ago. And then I watched a few more episodes and then I just skipped and watched the last three episodes. It was How I Met Your Mother. Is it a comedy? Yeah. <laughs> but I got to say, I was fucking pretty depressed. And I saw your tweet about at it. At the end of it, I was like, what? And I remember I, I stayed out to watch it because it's like the whole thing's about him watch the whole fucking premise of like fucking 10 seasons of this fucking thing is him telling his kids about how he met his mother. So it's like <laughs> you watch the whole fucking thing and finally I watched like eight seasons and I was like, fuck it. So I skipped ahead to watch the last three episodes. And it's like in the third last episode, he meets her. And then the next two episodes, it skips through like the last two episodes. It kind of skips through their life together, having kids, boom, 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 until she dies of cancer. <laughs> and that was it? And then that wow, alluding that he hooked up after that with the other chick from the show. Oh, weird. Yeah, it was a pretty weird plot. I was left pretty... 
pretty stunned. Pretty depressed by the whole thing. Hmm. It was a big lead up. You're talking about a fucking 10 year lead up. Yeah. Oh. To her fucking making and breaking in one episode. That'll learn you to commit to it. So, by the way, spoiler alert. For 10 years. <laughs> if you're halfway through <laughs> it. <laughs> I've been watching The Magicians and it's great. The Magicians? Yeah. It's awesome. Is that like HBO? I think it's sci fi. Sci fi. Yeah. Well, but right. I think it's also part racist. of the other one as well. Uh, Showtime, maybe I, I see Showtime? ads for it on Showtime, but I don't know. So I know we should we shouldn't even we don't even really watch the TV. We shouldn't talk about. I don't it. even have cable. Who do you got? You got any fucking? <laughs> hey, if you can be, I don't even have Facebook guy. Then I can be. I don't have cable. Well, guy. you watch even cable shows. You fucking go through fucking. You, you use Grimerica's social media. Enough of the F-bomb. Fuck you. Are you talking about Facebook? We need more people to like our Facebook page. Yeah, do you want to help? Anybody out there wants to help Facebook marketing, they can they can help us out. Yeah, and like it. And I've seen a few people picked up on the sharing instead of liking, but it's still only like two of you. So what does that mean? They share the page instead of liking share the, it? Share the post instead of liking them. Oh, I see. That's hard for people to share, man. That stuff takes a second. No, no, no. But it's like weird stuff we talk about, right? Sharing with your whole Facebook group is pretty challenging for people, man. It goes fucking into everywhere, right? All your aunts and uncles. That shit goes viral. All your friends and your old friends and your new friends and all going, what the fuck are these guys listening to? This Grimerica stuff. They'll be, you know, hounded about it for for years. (laughs) Sounds like somebody's got some fucking issues here. Do we open a can of worms? <laughs> no, we want to say thanks, though, for people that are helping out the show. Um, we sent I sent T-shirts out to Jason, James, and Will, who donated. So those are on their way on the slow boat to a couple of them are in the UK. Yeah. And a big thanks to Marcus and from Sweden, who Marcus sent Hell. us a donation. Yeah. yeah, helping keep the igloo warm. Helps restock the magnets, too. Helping with expenses, because yeah. obviously every month we do have way more expenses than we ever planned on having here. It does help. The new podcast player is another fucking expense. And thank you, Darren, for setting up the new website and the new podcast player. You want to describe on what, what what's kind of new at the website? And no, what you can well, do? I just added a couple of buttons. If you just go to the website, you'll see I've made it easier to email Graham. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so now there's a couple spots you can just click on spam Graham, take you right over. I don't know if I like having my name on a button at the top of the website, dude. Really? Yeah. It's not you. It's a different girl. It's Graham Gainsford. You're okay just fucking releasing 156 fucking episodes of podcasts, but you don't mind. The show is called Grimerica. How the fuck do you think I feel? I don't know. This the internet's not working on this tablet. So you can do pod. You can click on the podcast player to get all the podcasts. Uh, you can that's send Graham emails. Oh yeah, so that you can donate to the show that way, right? And the, then all the buttons on the right are also fixed. The, all the links for the those. Cool, right? Yes, the cool thing about the the player is it. Uh, I, I kind of set up. It's a little pricey. I mean, it's like ten bucks a month or something like that, but. The cool thing about it is for people who are fucking not podcast savvy, not fucking... Or they're just listening at work, savvy. let's say, because they work with one, like, one yeah, headphone in yeah, at work or something too, like that. It makes it easy to share the show. 
just say go to grandamerica.ca slash listen or grandamerica.ca slash player and right there it's going to take into a page where all they have to do is hit play and it's a nice fucking neatly organized list of our last 10 episodes and all and the episodes are back. accessible so it's just an easy place uh, to me it seems like an easier place to send someone who's not tech savvy than trying to fucking Explain how to download a podcast. Trying to explain how to get a podcast, a or even fucking YouTube's like a fucking field of landmines. You know what I mean? To actually go to fucking YouTube and like you know it's a crazy URL for one. Right. YouTube.saskamerica.slash. You know what I mean? And then even (laughs) to go to YouTube and search all this, all sorts of. There's so much shit on YouTube. So and it's not in a nice America, coherent like, exactly. pattern, like recent to... <clears throat> so for to, 10 to bucks earliest. a month, I find it makes us easier to share. All right. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Gramerica.ca slash listen or gramerica.ca slash player. Yeah. And then there's a nice donate button there as well. It shows uh, different ways to donate. Yeah, I've made it a little easier to find. Some people had said it was hard to find the donate button. So and some, and I don't think it worked in a lot of cases as well. So we had some people... Yeah, Wayne, Wayne fixed that a while back. Yeah. But I've just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It looks really nice. I haven't seen it before, but uh, yeah, looks good, man. What else to that? I think that's so. Yeah, it. well, the voicemail. So, so oh, there's yeah, all Spreaker's back, or not Spreaker, sorry. Uh, <laughs> speak pipe. What's that? Spreaker's canceled. <laughs> really? As of the 27th, yeah. You're not paying for Spreaker now? It's fucking 30 bucks a month. Yeah, that's it's not just, worth it. No. And we don't even have a thousand lessons on it. Okay. So I'm just pulling the plug. Speak pipe is what then? That's the voicemail thing. So there's been no way for people to really. I guess there was a URL, but we didn't give it out. It was speakpipe.com slash gramerica. But now there's a button right on the gramerica.ca page. And then people can go easily to iTunes, Stitcher, Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube, email. Yeah, so that's easy. That'll take you right to Stitcher where you can leave a review, right to iTunes where you can leave a review. Leave. Okay. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for doing that. No problem. You can pay me later. Maybe we'll get more donations. Of course, we do have the magnets, too, and I don't know how we're doing for t-shirts. I got a few left, yeah. Just a few few classic and a a lot of take-the-shots left. There's not as many people out there wanting take-the-shot. No, the take-the-shots came in fucking two months later. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. But more of the the classic Grimericas are going, so we're... We're running out, running a little low, but we got a few left. So that's some option. Of course, that's donations, $25 or more, $30 if you are across the pond, either direction. Uh, and we, we got the magnets that we're doing for donations of $5 or more or new subscribers. Do you have that in, as a thing? Or if you're an old subscriber and you want a magnet, just fire me an email and I'll send you one. But uh, all new subscribers get a uh, magnet, or we'll do them for donations of five bucks or more, or three for ten. So that's a what, a, like an eight by four, like a, is it's a four six by, by six. four, six by four magnet. Yeah, there's take the shot, classic Grimerica, classic Grimerica, and save Sasquatch, and those will stick to your fridge and hold up your shit, or the or they'll stick to your car. They've been on my car for a couple for a couple weeks now, so. And I keep having to give them away. There yeah, you go. Okay, cool. So that's, I'll get some pictures of those up on the website. Uh, yeah, we should do this that. This week. Yeah. All so, right, and of course, that's grimerica.ca slash support for all the different ways to help the show. And the easiest way to help the show is to tell your friends about the show. 
by signing up for the newsletter. Signing them up for the newsletter. Just type in their email address and sign them up. They'll never know it was you. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll have them forever. All right. So speaking of New York City and being Ephraim being from there, I got a couple synchronicities from a listener, Anna. Um, she's one, she's the one, one that was emailing about the luminous rain and all that. So she's finally got her out. <laughs> Synchronicity. It's time for another installment of the Canadian third party synchronicity. <laughs> you like this one, eh? Okay, this, this reminds me of... Uh, stuff that happens to my sister all the time around Vancouver. So she says, I'm also emailing you to finally share some of my synchro stories. Some are small and scattered, but there's themes throughout. So one thing all these things have in common is they're happening around Union Square and 14th Street in Manhattan. Er, Manhattan? (laughs) Manhattan. Manhattan. It's a very busy subway stop and all that. It's quite, quite, uh, quite a congregation there all the time. Anyways. The Manhattan congregation? <laughs> Is this a church? <laughs> the Manhattan church. I like that. So the first anecdote begins with me reading a local Brooklyn newspaper while on break from my job as a store clerk at a health food store in Brooklyn. Whole Foods. In the newspaper, I happened upon a page about a guy, a white guy in long dreads, of course, making a small art film. When I looked at this photo, especially his eyes and something about his smile, my heart began to race and I had the dizzying feeling of swooning over him. I even said something to my coworker like, oh my God, look at this guy. I ripped the page out and put it in my pocket. I felt like I was seven years old again when I would cut pop stars faces out and paste them into my diary. The guy stayed on my mind. I wasn't sure what to do about it. Well, a few weeks later, I threw my back out, which sometimes made it impossible to walk. I was also secretly going on job interviews because I wanted to leave that store. One day, one of the interviews was in Manhattan, and I had taken the subway in from Brooklyn, still refusing with my bad back to take a cab all the way from Brooklyn. But when I got out of the subway in the Union Square train stop, I just couldn't walk anymore. The interview was only five avenues away, and I was determined to go to the interview. So I begrudgingly hailed a cab. A few few blocks later, my cab was crossing an intersection and all of a sudden a person ran out in front of the cab. My driver came to a screeching halt in the middle of the crosswalk, almost hitting the person. The person, who had flung their hands onto the hood, flipped their face up to look at us. It was the guy from the newspaper. Yes, there are lots of white boys with dreads (laughs) in this city. But his face was distinct, and I also had been carrying the photo around in my back pocket for weeks. I knew that fucking face. I gasped. The driver yelled at the guy. It was the driver's right away. The guy mouthed sorry and walked off. All this happened within about five seconds. I felt like a, felt like it was a movie moment. It was so unreal. How far from the original location? <clears throat> but what? What does that have to do with Well, I'm just wondering, is it across the street from his work? No, there was, the original location was her reading a newspaper and pil- pulling his picture out of a newspaper. Oh. And then keeping it with her and thinking that's about right, the guy right, and swooning right, over right, him yeah, and then yeah, like yeah. almost hitting him in a cab. That's a total Did she get his over. number? No. 
No, she didn't. I know. I was, I was thinking it might go somewhere too. She should and have jumped out and said something. Scary. She missed her moment. She had, uh, she had her chance. Oh, I don't. I she should have. She should have slammed the gas. <laughs> or she should have distracted the cabbie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good right. one. All right, the second one. And the, and the two synchros. No, there's three. I'm just going to read two out of three. I'm going to save the third one. The third one's a little bit, little bit long. All from the same person? Yeah. All Let's from spread them all out. Let's just do one. Okay. I'll save the other one. I'll give it a, since you made me feel bad, I'll give her a seven. Oh, that's good. Yeah. She says, so there you have it, un- long-winded as usual, as it had to be. And I just want to read what she says about synchros. She goes, I don't know what any of them mean because none of them really enhanced or changed my life in any way. Just incredible little moments in the universe, which sometimes I think we shouldn't just question. We just shouldn't question, but instead accept the mystery, be wowed by it, then move on. Stay warm out there. And thank you so much for making your podcast exist. I love that. I love that. That's what I've been saying recently about accepting the mystery, like be wowed by it. Like, doesn't really matter why as much as just accepting that there's a mystery there. I love it. Thanks, Anna. Gracias. Hey, I like it. Do you want to do you want to thank George for his little uh, samples that he sent us there? Yeah, absolutely. Coghillcartooning.com. Yeah. George Coghill has a Kickstarter going, and he's made a bunch of uh, what would you call them? Like packages. Actually, I have it open here. Packages I've got, of uh, uh, the official membership <laughs> kit for the Yeti Squad comes with an embroidered patch, a sweet little "I love Yeti." Actually, it's "I foot Yeti," <laughs> so, uh, and there's an "I foot Bigfoot" in there as well. Oh, I don't know <laughs> what that means, but uh, yeah, there's the Bigfoot Patrol. Same thing. I foot Bigfoot. There's a sticker, a patch, a couple patches. It looks like a few patches. I haven't opened them up yet, but they look slick. And then there's the Sasquatch Brigade. Brigade, And you've got your Cryptid Command kit. <laughs> Glow in the dark with dog tags and everything. Yeah, that one comes with <laughs> Alien Air Force, Bigfoot Army, and the Nessie Navy. Dog tags and the paranormal forces with the eyeball on it. They're pretty cool. Yeah. I see you've got your badge, your crypto, your cryptid commando badge on right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to keep these three um, in the packages. The packaging. Just sell them on eBay in a couple of years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, when Cogco makes it big, we got his <laughs> autograph on the thing there. <laughs> We're fucking set. Okay, I'll break open mine then and put put it on the in the studio. You can just keep yours tucked away. Iron them to the wall? No, I think they're stick on actually too. Are they? Yeah. Sweet so anyways ass. thanks George absolutely we'll put a link in the show notes if people want to check out your website there uh, Coghill Cartooning and uh, there's a Kickstarter there there's only a few days left in the Kickstarter to get some of these these patches but be pretty cool cool gift Did for the open minded kids out there how's he doing George yeah uh, yeah he's doing good I think I don't know how, how would I know well don't you have the Kickstarter link Oh, did he make... Well, there's a bunch of Kickstarters there. <clears throat> oh, okay. I think. Let's see here. Uh, yes, he's 116% funded. Perfect. Good job, George. You can still fund and get reward. The, the, <clears throat> yeah, because imagine the price would go up. Right on, he made it. We should kickstart something. Let's kickstart a uh, trip to Hawaii. 
America <laughs> goes to Hawaii, or let's go to Easter Island. <laughs> Moai reunion, reunion with the Rapa Nui. I got a couple synchros to talk to you about from Easter Island. I'm going to save them for the next episode. Sounds good. We're running long already, so okay. we get into Easter. Okay, well, we got the UFO quote still, right? Yeah, can we do that? Uh, we'll get into Down in Graham, going deep. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. All right, see what you think of this one, Ephraim. All right. Words to ponder and critique. <laughs> Okay, sudden- <laughs> okay, suddenly the lights went out. There appeared a yellow halo on the water. It turned to an orange, to a fiery red, and then started movement toward us at a fantastic speed, turning a bluish red around the perimeter. Due to its high speed, its direction of travel, and its size, it looked as though we were going to be engulfed. It stopped its movement toward us and began moving along with us about 45 degrees off the bow to the right, about 100 feet or so below us and about 200 to 300 feet in front of us. It was not in a level position. It was tilted about 25 degrees. It stayed in this position for a minute or so. It appeared to be about 200 to 300 feet in diameter, translucent or metallic, shaped like a saucer, a purple-red fiery ring around the perimeter and a frosted white glow around the entire object. The purple-red glow around the perimeter was the same type of glow you get around the commutator of an auto-generator when you observe it at night. I don't know what that is, but somebody can look it up. When we landed in Argentia, which is Newfoundland, we were met by intelligence officers. The types of questions they asked us were like Henry Ford asking about the Model T. You got the feeling that they were putting words in your mouth. It was obvious that there had been many sightings in the same area, and most of the observers did not let the cat out of the bag openly. When we arrived in the United States, we had to make a full report to Navy intelligence. I found out a few months later that Gandar radar, Gander, that's Gander, Newfoundland, radar did track the object in excess of 1,800 miles per hour. That's from the captain of the Navy R-5D aircraft, February 8th, 1951. Captain, crew members, and passengers on a Navy R-5D aircraft witnessed UFO whilst flying over the North Atlantic on February 8th, 1951. Wow, I like that. Gander, that's where the lookout is. They go up there, a gander. <laughs> Take a gander? Is that where Was gander named after the lookout? Or was, was... I feel like I've been picking on Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> or was that was the tower was the city I don't look know. I've just named made after? It up. I don't even know if Gander's even a real lookup. Most of the people won't even get that joke. Probably that's probably a Canadian thing, eh? Having a yeah. Gander, yeah, taking a Gander, like taking a boo. It's that's a, a Canadian a, thing for sure. Take a boo, and people it's don't like, know what we're talking too? about. That's not Canadian. That's Newfie. All righty, Frayne, let's get to yeah. your shit, man. All righty, I want to know well, something. I got a question. Okay. When's your next book coming out? Okay, well, here's the thing. Because uh, the oh, sequel to Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> no, because uh, the sequel to Alien Cartel, Ties of Retribution, is in, in the midst of being edited. It's been in the midst of being edited for like the last year and a half, right? Really? Yeah, it's kind of. But is in it? the meantime, I'm writing another book that started out as a short story I was going to enter into this contest. 
And it's going to be a, supposed to be a short, short story. And the prize was to go to Puerto Rico. So that kind of got my attention, right? So oh, yeah, I could write the short story, you know, when I'm editing. And, but as I was writing the short story, it's expanded into like a, a novella, like a short <laughs> novel. So that's going to come out first before Times of Retribution. And oh, okay. uh, you, you're going to like this one. Actually, it's going to be, uh, uh, what it is, is they find someone stranded on Phobos, the moon of Mars. And NASA doesn't know how he got up there. So the whole story is about this whole background story. Anyways, it's pretty interesting. It's kind of like a ghetto version of the movie The Martian. That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. That should be coming out soon. Are you going to get Matt Damon? He's a good crier. You get cute. You know what else would be good? It would be Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh, there we go. He's always <laughs> crying and everything. What is it, Phobos, like six miles across? Wouldn't you just float off of that shit? No, no, it's got a, it's got a, it has enough mass that you would stay there, but you can jump up pretty high on it. How know, big so. is it? Uh, I, I don't know exactly the size of it, but the size of the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you can drive around it pretty quick. <laughs> but the thing about Phobos is that to me, that would be the perfect platform for man mission to Mars. Didn't you discover the Phobos monolith? Yeah. You don't know how big it is? Well, yeah, that's like about you know, 300 feet high. And I'm actually included the Phobos monolith. Oh, there we go. Oh. Of course, you got to include the monolith. So what yeah, would yes. it be? It'd be the dimensions. The oh. mean radius of the is yeah. 24 kilometers. 11 mm. kilometers. So that would be, yeah, that would be probably about 22 or 23 kilometers across diameter, yeah. which would be about, what, 70 kilometers around? Yeah, yeah. So escape velocity is only 11 meters a second, which could be like a good jump. Yeah, yeah, you could jump up and, uh, oh, oh. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're fucking Sandra Bullockin around Mars. <laughs> so did you, yeah, you did this, did you discover the monolith? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Buzz no. Aldrin. Yeah, fucking Buzz imagine Aldrin. it when it comes down to like 100 years from now, like the first alien artifact. Art turns craft. out to be Art, the, Art of Craft. There's another one. Tur turns out to be the like, Phobos monolith. Yeah, yeah. They go there and, and find it something to, written on it. Exactly. There. It's like the. I wonder if the Phobos monolith is like whatever got <laughs> fucked up on Mars when we nuked them with the pyramid. It just shot off and stuck to the. No, the Phobos, the Phobos monolith is like where the, they went out there and put this big fucking. Cannon. Uh, what's the word for it? The obelisk. Yeah. They yeah, went yeah. and put this giant fucking obelisk for the. For the Martians. Their, like remainder. Or tomb almost. And it like it looks all like shit now because it got blasted from the fucking radiation or whatever, you know, if there was an explosion, whether it was planets hitting each other or Mars getting attacked. When it well, got I, fucking blown to shit, the monolith got kind of <laughs> dilapidate a little bit in the shockwaves. <laughs> but it's still there and they're gonna go there, they're gonna find a plaque. And then Ephraim, mm -hmm. and then it's gonna be like, hey, Ephraim was the first guy that recognized the monolith. Now find the America show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if it turns out to be something bad, they can say that fucking Ephraim man. Look, <laughs> look what he discovered. He messes up. So are but, you uh, are you editing your book, uh, Your Tides of Retribution, or is it out for editing no, somewhere? No, I'm still editing it. So this this one that's gonna come out first is called Phobian Dreams. Oh my god, that sounds sexy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so the model of plays a big part in the story. <laughs> so this will come out. Uh, the, the phallic monolith in the yeah, phobian yeah. dreams. 
Holy <laughs> <laughs> <The> flaccid monolith. <laughs> And so you know, when this book comes out, I want to come on and talk about it. I want you guys to read it, and then we can talk about it, because you'll find it very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Are you doing it in audio as well, again? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, I do an audio. But first, you know, do it, do it written, and get a Kindle version, and then do the audio version. And then, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> can I play the guy on Phobos? You're it, man. Perfect. It's, this it's is it. my big gig. That's it. This is my big chance. <laughs> so, uh, but in the meantime, when I was doing this, I mean, I've talked about the, my ice spike thing on your show a couple of times. And uh, <clears throat> well, recently, in the last six months, I kind of went back into it and thinking about it. And I was getting them in my freezer pretty often to the point where I was, as a scientist, amateur scientist, I was thinking maybe I have the right conditions in my freezer, right? The right kind of water, the right kind of temperature, whatever it is that this it's just a normal thing, just my freezer. But in order for me to prove otherwise, my test was to create an ice spike in somebody else's freezer. Right. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And uh and I went over to this person's house and said, I want to use your freezer, I want to take this ice tray, I want to fill it up, uh, I want to make an ice spike. And I asked them, have you ever seen one? And I showed her a picture. No, never saw one. Lo and behold, an hour later when we checked, there were two ice spikes in there. Wow. On my, on my very first try doing this in this person's house. Well, then uh, she tried it herself, and two weeks later, she got an ice spike. She never saw one before. So I was going, wow, okay, so this is getting interesting. So it still could be a coincidence. So then I said, okay, I have to do this again. So I went to somebody else, and I'm talking about the ice spike, and she said, you know what? She said, she, she told me, that's junk science. There's no <laughs> way, right? No way. What are you talking about? Ice bikes and crap. You know, it's junk science. I said, well, what if, let me get your ice tray. Let me try it. Same thing. A couple hours later, two ice bikes in it. Huh. She goes, yeah, she goes, wow. Well, then I had her try it and she got it. So, and she, you know, she has a real clear memory. She said, I've never, I've never seen one before. And then she saw one. So that kind of like validated, you know, my research into this in that my, my theory is that by being aware of, of the ice spike, when you fill your ice tray, that you increase the probability of it occurring. Huh. So what I, what I want to do, and I'm going to start a, a crowdsource experiment, right, to get as many people as possible to do this. Speaking and of I, Kickstarter, Dan, the Ice Spike Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but let's be honest. It's for free. It's for free. Yeah, it's free. You know, but uh, there's, there's no money in it yet, right? But, but the the idea is to have because here's the thing: the people that I've been doing this with are people that I know, I've been in contact with, and it could be argued that in some way or fashion or whatever, I, you know, I had some interference. I was a variable in the experiment. So if I can get other people to do it who don't know me, never met me, and somebody like you know in England, you know in the UK, they try, oh wow, they get an ice spike, then I'm going to start tabulating these results. So, so what would people do then to to do this? Like, do you have to meditate on it, or you just focus on it as you're filling it up, or? Yeah, just just think about it. So it's a real light thing, and and eventually, what I like to try to do, eventually, what should happen is to narrow down what it is exactly. 
that's doing it. You know, in a period of time that is doing it. Is it happening when you fill the ice tray or is it happening? Because water freeze, it takes about, you know, 15, 20 minutes, depending on your freezer. So that's a little window of time when it, when it starts happening. So during that time... What, uh, what's, uh, what causes the ice break? So t- like, like physically... Yeah, yeah, is it basically, is it everything freezes so quickly that the pressure builds up under the ice and there's a tiny little hole left in the middle and squirts it out? Well, what it is, because when ice freezes, it expands. And so in, a, in an ice cube, it's freezing from the ice side in. It's kind of like squishing a little bit. Yeah. And it has to be a certain little window, something in the surface, like surface tension or whatever it is, that it starts pushing out through it. And as, it, as it's squeezing and, and stretching, it comes out, it creates like this long spike. I've However, never seen one, I don't think. I know, right? I mean, you, if you saw one, you would know, right? Because it, it, it's so odd that you would go, there's no way that you could see it, oh, that's nothing. You know what I'm saying? Or oh, that happens all the time. It's a very rare experience. So part of this experiment, the, the first one is one, like, like you said, Darren, for sure, like, you know, you never saw one, right? Uh, now, let's, I don't think so, unless I was drinking. Yeah, I might yeah, have just but, thrown it right in my cup and not even notice. <laughs> I think you, would have, you probably would have poked your eye out with it, you know, because kind of a, you know, it's, it's that distinct. But, but part of this experiment is to determine a point of time when you know for sure that you never saw one, right? And then when you do get one eventually, right, that's test number one. Okay, you created one. The next thing that happens is you get another one shortly thereafter. See, now, now we're working with two, two, two criteria there. First, you never saw one. Now you got one. Now you're getting another one again. And the time between those two instances compared to the time before is, is statistically, right? It's, it's not, it goes beyond coincidence. Okay, now what if it could happen again after that? Right, three times, four times. So then, after that happens, because part of this whole experiment I'm doing is that then you go to somebody else's freezer and you try it in their freezer and you make sure that you find someone that's never seen one, never had one for sure. Like, no, I never saw one. No way. You go to the house, you put an ice tray in there, fill it, and an hour later, they have an ice spike. <laughs> right. I know. Try you, it. Yeah. Now, if you could do that. Then, you know, so, so see, I'm saying it's going beyond, you, you know, know it'd be an interesting variable if I could get one of my kids, to, if I could get one of my kids to try it. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if the un, um, indoctrinated mind is any more powerful. That, 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 if actually, I could get my four year old to do it maybe, and tell her, mm-hmm. you know, say, I think you can make spikes. Maybe yeah, yeah. when they're all off spikes. They're just yeah, would you, spiked out everywhere. <laughs> yeah. What you do, like, show, you know, show them a picture of one. So I just think yeah, of exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It'd be, be that simple, actually. If you gave him a picture yeah. and then make some ice together while the picture's sitting on the counter or something. Mm-hmm. But, but, but here's the thing, though. I mean, aside from that, because that opens the door to something else now, like what really is going on. By are you being aware of something, is it changing something? Is, are you affecting matter? So what we're looking at is more like quantum mechanics. It's the observer, or effect. it could just be the Volkswagen bug effect. <laughs> yeah, but it's the observer effect. You know where 
you know, where they did that test with a double slit experiment, right? Where a particle was doing one you thing. You could when find out easy enough, though. Like, if I make ice for two weeks and I can get one fucking 50% of the time. Do you need a bigger sample? So basically, you'd have to make ice every day and dump it out. Well, and if I make ice for a month and fucking try yeah. and make them and then I get Lisa to make don't even tell Lisa about it. Right, and then just right. let Lisa make, tell Lisa, I just, hey, I need you to make ice every day. Mm-hmm. That could be and a, I get to somehow not think about it. That's the problem. Right. And what don't tell that? me when you're making ice. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting complicated yeah, already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, but That's a tough so, one to pull off, right? Because you almost need, you need, you need control ice. Well, that's the other question. Is what's, in, what's in the water, right? That's another part. Like, is there fluoride in your water? Because we don't have fluoride in Calgary, so it might be easier or harder to make spikes. Well, here's the thing. Like, like there are scientists that research. Kidding. No, <laughs> but there's scientists that research it. And what they say is these conditions, like you have to have, like, distilled water is one of them. And I've discovered that it doesn't matter, right? You could use, and I've tested this. I use distilled water, bottled water. Water from the tap, filtered water, you know, boil a hot water, a boiled water, put it in. It doesn't matter. Ice spike would occur under any of those conditions. Oh, wow. so, mm. Yeah. So, so it doesn't matter what about the water. So are you 100% ice spiking? Uh, I'm more like 50% right 50%? now. 50%? Yeah. As Which opposed the, to zero to someone who's like, what's exactly. the percentage? Of I tried a couple times when he, when he first version did it and I, I didn't get any. But my I have small ice cube trays though. No, that can make yeah. a difference. You know what they say about guys with small ice cubes. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, the longest I, I've had, uh, someone did it, it, took three months. Now, that may not seem a lot, but compared to never seeing one, and it actually did it in three months' time. And But what you have to do as part of this test, this experiment I'm working on, is don't increase your ice tray usage. You know, just do as you normally do, because... Statistically, right, if you just like change your ice tray every 20 minutes, right, then eventually you might get one, right, statistically. Right. But, right. but if you I don't think it matters, off, though, it's just about percentage. Yeah. But so you know, if you can yeah. do it five times out of 100, the problem I have is the control ice. You got to get mm-hmm. someone making ice for you. Yeah. And you've got to not, you've got to not know when, but then at the time even matter. Yeah. Does you just hiring them to make the ice? Have you already fucked it up? You have to hire a guy to hire a guy that doesn't know what's going on to hire a guy to make quadruple ice. blind ice study. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, in this case, the control is yourself. In other words, like your experience of seeing one or not is that part of it. Now, a way you can do it, you know, like you're saying with another person, is have someone. Just tell them, just fill it down. Don't tell them anything about ice spikes. You know, like, just go fill the ice tray and then take out the breath in the freezer. You know, just have them do random things and that, and have no idea that they're doing this thing with ice spikes. And then in the same freezer, has somebody come back who has ice spike control or whatever, you know, <laughs> and go in and create an ice spike under the same conditions. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do this, but, but for right now, what I want to do is, t- is collect data. You know, just just tabulate information, like have people do this. And I, I tell you, for the people that I've seen who experienced it, they they are shocked because they go, I've never seen this before. You told me about it. I put it in the fridge and I saw one. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of a subjective thing. But if I get enough, you know, got enough information, I think that it would lead, it would point to something to look at. 
Yeah, okay. And then when you get really good at it, E-Frame, we can make little handles on our ice cubes so you don't have to do the, you know, they're hard to get out of the tray. Just pick it up with a little <laughs> ice spike handle. And... No, Darren, you're not getting it? How big do you think this ice spike is? Well, they're big enough it. to grab. <laughs> to grab and strong enough to pull. Yeah, yeah. I've seen them before, and I think that, that they're yeah. like big enough to sort of pick it up. Oh, yeah. Like the... yeah, yeah, they get pretty big. So so uh, do you have this all set up, like this uh, this experiment all set up? Like, do you have an app on your phone for it or now? No, or well, what, what I'm going to do, I'm going to set it up on my website. So so probably be like another week or so. But if you go to uh, you know palermoproject.com, I'm going to have a link to my quantum spike experiment all right now here's my theory on this is that ice spike formation is on a, on a rest of the very delicate balance at the molecular level or the atomic level and that the chances of an ice spike happening on its own is almost nil it's rare right it, it could happen but it's almost doesn't happen however if you put attention on it or observe it somehow shaking that balance right so what you're doing is you're increasing the probability of it occurring by being aware of it and and if i can prove that then what this is would be a physical microcosmic proof of the observer effect huh. did you have to did you try being in a state of mind like the marasudo Emoto or Marisu, I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Like the water experiments where they'd freeze water like with love on it. So were you sexually excited at the time of your spike, do you think? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, it's actually a really light thing. It's not even like, it's not like a, a Jedi mind trick kind of thing. You know, you're not, you know, you're not doing a Vulcan mind meld on your ice tray. It's just being aware of it. Just thinking, okay, ice, ice spike. And, but there's something there. And it's like, I'm getting close to feeling that more, you know, whatever that is. But other people have been doing this. That happens to them more than once. Say there's something, you know, so what you're trying to do is trying to narrow what that is that's creating this. And if I can prove this, right, what this would be is that there would be an actual, an natural physical proof of mind over matter. Yeah. Or, you know, a telekinesis. Yeah. Well, you it's could do the sexy ice cream. You can do it. do 50 shades of gram too. <laughs> gram makes ice. Well, it's pretty interesting because water's probably like one of the best things for to try that experiment on. Remember right? that like old fucking movie with the bleep do we know or mm -hmm. whatever? They, oh, they had that yeah. blessed uh, water. Well, that's what I'm talking about. The, yeah. That's the MO. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. That's oh, that's what what talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you he would get him on the show. You would have like, is well, he, yeah, I've thought about that. Considered him. Yeah, I got, I got his book or whatever. On. I think it's like I had his book at some point. Oh, yeah. Back. Yeah, he would <laughs> so, freeze water with different intentions and you'd see the right. different crystallization. See the crystal, see the crystal, right, right. So, yeah, so the mind, you know, the, if, if you imagine, right, and the, the thing about his experiment, his point was, is that your body is mostly water. I mean, that's the bulk of your... Oh, exactly, yeah. Right? So if you can affect, Yeah, so if you can affect water in a positive way, which is... A large part of your body, then you can affect the positive, you know, rhythm or whatever it is of your body. So, and you know, and adversely, if you think bad about yourself or your body, you know, it can affect it negatively as well. So, but this is I think a little bit different because I what, what I think what this is what's happening here is is this a probability thing? This like this this uh, like in Heisenberg. Uh, effect, you know, it's like something is a probability curve, right? Like the Schrodinger's cat. Right. 
Mm-hmm. It, that one, the experiment, the stored experiment, where you put a cat in a metal box and has this radioactive thing that if one thing comes out and it sets off this gas that kills the cat, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's inside this metal box. And it, by looking at the box, you can't tell if the cat died or not, right? So what that is, is a state, right? It's a probability state that the cat is both alive and dead inside the box, as far as you know, right? Once you open the box, then you change it because now you can see the cat is alive or dead. So it becomes either or. But Unless you have a camera on the cat that I right, can see they, and you can't. We should yeah, get some cats, man. I could, we could do that. <laughs> right. hey, you don't want to get PETA fired up on this. Fuck PETA. They don't do any. <laughs> That's actually a, it's a cruel experiment, but it's, it's only a thought experiment because the idea was, it was that when you open it, you're changing what's called the, the wave function. You know, the wave function is either or, but when you open it, you change it, it becomes one or the other. So, you, so here's the trick would be to make the box without the killing thing and then just tell people the killing things in there and see how long it takes you to come up with a dead cat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could happen. So, uh, yeah, so it's kind of like that. No. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm shaking so, his no. head. No, 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 no. No? Okay. You don't like yes. that? Don't take the shot. At the cat? What if it's a stray cat? No, of course not. These cats are roaming around and packs fucking people up, you said, a couple hundred shows ago. Zeus was a stray cat. Now he's a great cat. Uh, Maybe a rat. What about the feral cats that were attacking people? We could use them. I don't think that's that's pseudoscience. What about the cats that were going to fight me? So anyway, this should be pretty interesting. So I'm going to launch this experiment and get results and I've tabulated and and, I, and and hopefully get enough information and get enough of a database that someone can look at and go, whoa, there's something here to look at. That's all I'm doing. It's like pointing at this phenomenon because it is something that is happening. And it's not just me doing it, right? It's other people. It's happening to outside of myself, right? If it's just happening to me and I could do this at will, then, you know, I'm just some, some Jedi guy, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, like, Darren, if you went out and, and tried it or one of your kids did it and they got a nice spike, you, you know, have, you have to kind of pause and wonder what's going on. Yeah, we'll try it for sure. I'm going to try yeah. it. This is my kind of experiment. I make ice all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to make a lot of ice because I eat a lot. We eat a lot of, I make a lot of soup. Okay. The soup's yeah. always hot. And the kids always want ice cubes. And I make a lot of ice cream. I drink a lot of rum, rum and coke. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> and but, vodka. But, but. <laughs> now, here's, a, here's another stage on this. That if that's the case, then it might, it might be possible that uh, you can actually change matter by obser- observing it at that level. You see? Uh because you have to realize everything is made of quantum stuff, right? The Quarks whole, and quarks. Yeah, it, it just, that makes up everything. So at the at that experimental level, when they did this, uh, uh, right, the double slit experiment, they were using one electron at a time and seeing if it went left or right, or if it did a if it went wave, or if it went particle, one electron at a time. Uh, but what if you can do it? on a larger scale, right? What if you could look at matter, look behind the scene, like, like pull the curtain apart of matter and be aware of it at the quantum level? 
Because if you can see matter at the quantum level, then what you're doing, you're observing something that you shouldn't be observing. Because if you observe it, you're going to change it. Hmm. Right? So this kind of slipping, you know, I kind of slipped with a banana peel and fell down a rabbit hole on this thing. Because what it is, is then it's possible to affect matter at a gross level, like a microscopic level. Yeah. If, if this turns out to be. Yeah. You know, so anyway, so that's, that's the kind of theoretical, philosophical direction that it could be going. Right on, buddy. Well, it like sounds it. interesting. I'm going to try it. Yeah. 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 That's right. And, uh, and any of the listeners out there, uh, you could try this. Uh, I'm going to set up this uh, website. I could have like report forms. You could, what I want to do is have people register. And they're going to fill out a form. So I know that, you know, I mean, you could do this on your own, but I'm trying to tabulate this. Yeah, yeah. Like collect data, you yeah. know, so it's, it's all free. You sign up, basically, you get it, you know, I get your email. And then you, number. You re- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you report, you know, if something happens and I, I tabulate it. And it's all these criteria, these questions I ask. And eventually, I think that this is enough of a database that might shine the light on something. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll give it a shot, man. I like yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Anyone, and, anyone and, can do it. Yeah. Anyone can do it. It doesn't take anything special. You don't have to do anything different. Or you have the only thing you're changing is you're thinking about ice spikes. Yeah. That's it. The only thing you're doing. And then now here's another thing is the ice spikes do evaporate after a while. You know, it's like if you get one, if you don't look in the freezer for like a week, you know, it's, it's going to go down to like a little nub. So, you know, if you check your freezer like the next day or it will shortly after it freezes, like within a half hour. Do nubs you count? Yeah. Well, yeah, if you can tell. <laughs> but should it's kind of hard to do. Should I keep tracking nubs? Well, that's kind of hard to, to go on that. But but what, what a nub might indicate was that you, you took too long to look at it, right? Because it takes a while for it to go away. So, Are you going to have like the biggest spike record as well? And then people measure them and send their pictures in and stuff? Yeah, that could be. Yeah, because like I, like I mentioned them, and, and I, you could get multiple spikes. Like I've gotten, uh, at one time, I got four spikes in one ice tray. One cube? One one, tray. Well, different cubes, yeah. One ice tray. Each cube, like four cubes had up. I wonder spikes. if the size of the spike must be directly related to the size of the ice cube tray. Uh, no. This sounds no. fun. I'm going to go out and buy a bunch of fucking ice cubes. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, if you do, then you know what? This is, and you heard it on Grand America Show. Well, I don't need yeah. a freezer. I could just put them in the backyard. I could just put them on the table. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> We're going to put them right in the studio here yeah. and watch the spikes form. All righty, friend. Thanks, buddy. Hey, th- thanks for letting me talk about it. Yeah, and, uh, it's good. I'll, I'll let you know when uh, Phobia and Dreams is ready. And hey, you're going to like this. Yeah, and it might, might end up seeing you at a conference here coming up, hopefully, in, in yeah. Dallas if we go. And- yeah, big thanks to Efrain. Check out grammarica.ca slash support. Uh, we'll take a quick break and jump into the chat with RPJ, David, and Andrew. Yeah.
right, today we have a bit of a round table, kind of put together by Red Pill Junkie, who's joining us from Mexico City. And then we have um, Andrew Chestnut, PhD, and David Metcalf, who are working on this project about Santa Morte. Um, a- Andrew has a, uh, he's a professor of religious studies, and David Metcalf is, you know, focusing on the intersection of art and culture and consciousness, and he contributes to the Daily Grail, which is where I think he met Red Pill Junkie there. And Andrew's done a little bit more work on um, on religions, and he had a, a book come out before that. But this is a very interesting project because it's something that we don't really hear much about, yet there's symbolism all over the place for it, and it's a Santa Murte, and I don't know if you call it a, a cult or a religion or whatever, but we'll get into the details with these guys. So without further ado, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm. Likewise. So, uh, Red, yeah. what, how do you want, where do you want to start with this thing? Red, you've, uh, you're in Mexico there. Uh, a little bit more of influenced by by this thing than we are up in Canada. I guess so. I guess I have, uh, have uh, had more exposure to this, and it's a, a great question that we can pose to the panel here. Uh, what's the difference between a cult and a religion? You know, maybe is it, is it about think about numbers and the number of years that he has been established? You know, the the influence that he has upon a, a certain society. But getting back to Santa Muerte, yeah, I, I remember how several years ago we here in Mexico started to hear about it because the media was uh, uh, covering news about how uh, there was this new kind of religion that it was kind of uh, uh, becoming very popular, especially uh, among uh, uh, people in the dark side of society, as it were, you know, criminals, you know, and gangs and, and, and whatnot. And before Santa Muerte, we already have a, another example of this kind of uh, uh, cult or following by, by, by a criminal organization, which was the, the cult of Malverde, Malverde, which is we became kind of a, like a, the saint patron of drug cartels. Hmm. And it has, uh, for example, there is this um, very famous novel written by an Spanish author by the name, the name of Arturo Perez Reverte. The name of the, 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 this novel is La Reina del Sur, the Queen of the South, which now, <laughs> interestingly enough, is now become a bit relevant because of uh, this uh, infamous uh, interview that Sean Penn conducted with El Chapo Guzman. And the reason why that interview happened is be- uh, through the mediation of an, uh, a Mexican actress by the name of Kate Del Castillo, who played the, the role of Teresa Mendoza, the protagonist, in the televised version of La Reina del Sur. Okay, so getting back to Malverde. Malverde was kind of like this uh, 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 sort of a saint-like idol that uh, people who were smuggling drugs started to, to pray, you know, to instead of like pray to the usual or the quote-unquote sanctioned Catholic saints, so that kind of became uh, like the semi-official uh, religion of, of, of these criminal organizations. But it, it now seems that the cult of Malverde has been re- greatly replaced by the cult of Santa Muerte. And even it was clear that for a, for a time, the Mexican government was really trying to fight 
this new uh, cult, which apparently they saw as a threat. And we will see in the news how they will, the, the, the police will go to, to these uh, temples or these rooms in, the, in which they will find uh, statues of Santa Muerte with candles and whatnot. And they will raise all this in a really, in my opinion, pathetic attempt to stamp out this new religion. But now uh, either they stopped or they finally uh, understood that it was a futile attempt. And now I guess that Santa Muerte is seen as something that is, well, you know, something that is happening, that is prevalent, that is gaining uh, momentum in some sectors of, of the Mexican society. Uh, but uh, to be honest, uh, here in Mexico, uh, uh, at the level of the, 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 the casual reader or the casual um, consumer of news, we really don't know much about the real origins of this of this uh, cult. And that's why I was really interested in to organizing or help to organize this roundtable because we, I wanted to have you guys, David and Andrew, who who are obviously much more knowledgeable in this subject than, than, than I, and obviously the, the, the average listener. So we, you could, guys help, uh, could help us out to learn more about the origins of Santa Muerte, the, the level of, uh, I don't know, influence that is, that is currently having here in Mexico and maybe elsewhere. And where do you guys see Santa Muerte could go uh, 10, 50 years from now, you know, it will, it, will it become a, a, a recognized religion the same way as o, o other sorts of religion, like, I don't know, Santeria or maybe the Santo Daime uh, 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 church in Brazil and elsewhere. And well, I guess that's, that was my impetus and so what I, why I'm so looking forward to starting this discussion. Well, Andrew, did you start out with a? This is this is her. This is who she is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we probably should address who Santa Muerte is. Um, you know, there's there's different ways to to classify or categorize Santa Muerte, and um, I, I think probably the most helpful is is she really kind of belongs to the genre of what are called folk saints in Latin America. Latin America, of course, is the largest Catholic region on Earth. Some 40% of the 1.3 billion Catholics on Earth are in Latin America. Wow. However, Latin America is really different from the rest of Catholic regions on Earth. And there's these tens of these scores of, of folk saints who in most cases were real Latin American men and women born, lived out their lives, and often died tragic often violent deaths from Mexico down to Argentina, and then who quickly after death developed a reputation for being strong miracle workers. Mm -hmm. Now, most of you out there probably know that the great majority of the 10,000 plus Catholic saints in the world were European. And so a lot of Latin Americans don't necessarily make this kind of more intimate or personal connection to these mm -hmm. European Catholic saints who in many cases lived centuries ago. And so in many cases, these, these folk saints, such as, uh, such as the one um, you Red Pill mentioned, uh, Jesus Malverde, mm -hmm. and another one would be Mashimon or San Simon from, from Guatemala, 
are often more popular among many uh, grassroots Latin Americans than, than the Catholic saints, because most of them, again, were real Latin American men and women who, who uh, lived out their lives on Latin American soil. So I think Santa Muerte, kind of as this personification of death, fits within that rubric of, of folk saints. However, where she really differs is that at this point, she cannot be traced to any particular real Mexican woman. You will hear some folk tales and legends about that. But still at this point, there is you cannot trace in general Santa Muerte back to any fixed Mexican woman uh, who actually lived. And so, and so in that way, she differs from the other folk saints in, in that she's really believed for most devotees to, to be the representation, the personification of death itself. And within just the space of 15 years since she went public in 2001, she's developed a reputation as being an incredible, uh, speedy, and efficacious miracle worker. And she works miracles of all sorts, not only one or two, uh, which contrasts to most of the Catholic saints who tend to specialize in certain types of miracles. David, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, and she's, uh, it's interesting because you look back at, um, well, if you look at the iconography of uh, Santa Muerte, the you can't trace her back really to any specific point where suddenly this cult emerges. Um, but you can see instances where the iconography emerges. And um, one of those places in, is in um, Plague Europe. So, you know, in the 1300s and 1400s when Europe was facing the Black Plague, mm-hmm. um, you have all these famous paintings that come out of, you know, I think uh, Brugel has the Triumph of Death. You have a lot of paintings of a Grim Reaper figure that's standing over Europe and, you know, that's when the, the dance macabre comes out and those pictures of skeletons dancing and that kind of stuff. Um, but there actually were cases where people were praying to Saint Death, which is one of the translations of Santa Muerte is simply Saint Death. And um, in a very similar way um, as being uh, incredibly efficacious miracle worker and kind of the last resort that they have, you know, everybody's dying. You've got a third of Europe being completely decimated. And so um, in that instance, they started turning to death as a figure that they could pray to, you know, uh, a different kind of vision of things being personified, you know, because one of the differences between official Catholic saints and Santa Muerte, which is less different with the other folk saints, is that um, one of the theological issues that the Catholic Church has brought up is that she's not a real person. So she can't be, she's a, a force, so you can't really sanctify a force, you know, and so, and that's one of the things that has allowed the cult seemingly to move away from its Catholic roots and kind of start to develop its own thing, because, uh, you know, it's personification of death, um, you know, I mean, there's, it's kind of the last step there, you know, there's, the death is overseeing everything, you know, they see this figure of Santa Muerte as being almost all-powerful next to God, because, you know, God would be the only thing that death couldn't kill. So uh, it's produced a pretty potent mythology. And like Andrew said, 2001 is when it went public. Um, in the current uh, kind of, at least the, the early version of what we see today, um, today it differs a lot because um, people like Enrique de Vargas and Tultalan are now doing weddings 
um, and there's a lot of exorcisms that go on now, um, which was part of the original cult. Um, another area that you can see Santa Muerte having a kind of roots in is uh, here in Dirty Smilandru area. So um, curing magic and uh, witchcraft. There seems to have been the figure of Santa Muerte as kind of a, an initiatory centerpiece to um, certain brujos and uh, curanderos practice. And that predates the, the public emergence. <laughs> so it has interesting roots and it kind of drifts into a lot of different places. You know, um, the main thing that seems to hold it together is the iconography, this really visceral figure of a Grim Reaper. Um, seems or, to... or as I, I call in my book, a grim reapress, right? Yeah, 99% of time, which, which is interesting going back to what, what David says, the connection with the European grim reaper. In, in the case of Spain, more often than not, she, she was represented as a female, as the grim reapress called La Parca. So, so yeah. in her female iconography and representation in Mexico, we have that continuity with this Spanish La Parca, which is a, which is an interesting contrast because there's two other skeletal folk saints actually in the Americas, one in Argentina called Santa Muerte, and the other in, in southern Mexico, Chiapas, and in Guatemala called Rey Pascual. And the Guatemalan and the Argentine are actually masculine skeletal saints. And so it's interesting that, that the Mexican Santa Muerte, who by far is the most popular in terms of devotees, preserves the female, female identity of the Spanish Grim Reapers. Well, I guess one of the things that maybe may account for this is because uh, difference uh, between the two languages, Spanish and English. You know, in Spanish, you have these um, assignments of gender to uh, genderless objects of things. We called we we always say la muerte. Uh, you know, assigning a, a, a female. Uh, gender to death instead of say el muerte, you know, and and uh, in in, uh, in contrast with English, the English language in which death or the ocean or the sea, they don't they they are ascribed a neutral gender because you know that they are no, neither female nor male, in essence. But I wanted to get back to some of the other things that you guys were saying about how we can we cannot really trace. Santa Muerte as a saint or as a folk saint to any specific uh, woman uh, or person who may have lived or may have allegedly lived in, in legend. Uh, but uh, right now, when you were saying this, I was thinking of this very ancient uh, Mexican legend of La Llorona. And, yeah, and that's one of the, that is mm -hmm. one of the areas that um, when Andrew was talking about kind of the folk stories that um, tie into the origins of Santa Muerte. Some of them are very similar to the uh, La Llorna uh, mm -hmm. stories. Very similar. Yeah, because, well, uh, I mean, if, if we're talking about, about iconography, yes, obviously the modern iconography of Santa Muerte is very much in correlation with the Euro European or westernized vision of, of death. But 
in all honesty, I mean, Mexico <laughs> has always been very comfortable with uh, with depictions of death as a skeletal as a in a skeletal form. You know, I mean, it, taking it back to really really ancient times to the Mesoamerica. I mean, uh, uh, all almost all the Mesoamerican native cultures they have this cult or or this. Uh, Adoration or respect for the the king the the nether regions of death uh, in, in in the Mexicas or Aztecs they called it Mictlan and Mictlan will have the the Lord Mictlan Tecutli the Lord of Death and and his cohort you know Mictlan Siwatl I think you know the, the lady death right yeah and well the Mayas you have Shivalva and all that so. I guess. Do you do you guys think one of the reasons why uh, something as Santa Muerte couldn't have arised, uh, or was so pro, uh, Mexico was such a fertile place in which something like this could have arisen, is because we already were so accustomed to these visions of you know the the, the dancing skeletons that we have during the Dia de Muertos and, and all these. Uh, iconography created by the likes of uh, Posada, you know, this, this famous illustrator from, from the early 20th century. Do you think that this is one of the reasons why the, arri the, arise or the arrival of Santa Muerte was almost, almost logical? Yeah, I, I think I think no doubt that there's a there's a strong pre-Columbian influence, but it's not it's not only Mesoamerica because again I just mm -hmm. mentioned there's the Argentine and also Paraguayan San Muerte mm -hmm. who was a result of syncretism or fusion with a Guarani indigenous culture. So it's not only Mesoamerican; it's it's you know indigenous groups were, uh, around the Americas. Who found who found similarities with the Catholic emphasis on relics, right? Which we still see right now. David, you and I were were, were going back and forth about yeah. uh, Padre Pio, whose yeah, body is on display at the Vatican, and so yeah, yeah. the cult of the relics brought over. Imagine if it's still strong today. Imagine what it was like, you know, five centuries ago when with Spanish medieval Catholicism. And so, yes, there is a great point of contact between this, this, this idea of, of holy bones and, and, and beliefs and death gods and goddesses in Mesoamerica, but again, throughout the indigenous Americas. Yeah. And, and that's one of the interesting things is that, um, and one of the, the things that's really curious about Santa Muerte is that, um, you know, as Red Pill said, you've got this, this obvious um, historical examples of, you know, cults that surrounded the dead and uh, spiritual beliefs around the dead. But Santa Muerte, as she's developed up to now, is 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 drawing on that kind of support, but is a separate figure. Because right? the, the Santa Muerte you encounter in the Philippines, which was, you know, and it there it's came over with the Spanish influence as well there, and, and Santa Muerte pops up. Um, the San, the Saint Death in the Middle Ages, very similar. It's a very similar way that the people were propitiating death, were asking for death south. Um, and, you know, there were, I wrote an article um, which was in Pajama Surf um, in Spanish and then uh, in Eris Magazine in English called Santa Muerte and the Elves. And if you mm -hmm. go back to the witchcraft trials in Europe, 
a lot of the evidence that doesn't seem to have been, you know, extracted through torture or kind of made up, the the peasant beliefs or the beliefs of the, you know, the people um, on the ground for a sort of queen of the dead figure that um, initiated magic and, and had this relationship with um, with different magical practices and that is very similar to how Santa Muerte was operating in Carindarismo and Brujeria. So you've got this really interesting resonance of this figure that suddenly has become uh, incredibly popular with all of these kind of hidden, you know, influences that are floating through the culture. And then it, it pops up in these areas where, yeah, you can go back and see these historical things, but it also still contains this resonance from areas that seem totally disconnected, like witchcraft trials in Europe. You know, um, but then when you start to look at the way that the the people are interacting with it, um, you know, you start to see these similarities that it's really surprising to find. And the popularity of the figure, something that really blew Andrew and I both away, is that you know, in 2001 is when this becomes a, a public practice. You know, prior to that, it was a, a private practice, which you can definitely trace back to the 40s of. Um, a lot of love magic, but there was obviously some vengeance and revenge magic being worked through this figure as well. Um, but in 2001, it goes public in Mexico City, and by 2005, it's starting to get big in the United States. And by the time that Andrew's book came out in 2012, you could find Santa Muerte in. You know, I think you, Andrew, you said you saw, you found candles in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, I was right. finding stuff in suburban Atlanta, in suburban Chicago, um, and not necessarily not. This wasn't hard to find. I mean, there was stuff. Yeah, you could go to a Latin market and pick it up, or go to a botanica and pick it up. But it was also it was appearing on grocery store shelves. Right, where, and now you, you and I, you are you and I are on various Facebook pages of devotees of Santa Muerte where they're almost exclusively Euro-American white devotees, yeah. most of whom don't speak Spanish and most of whom have never been to Mexico. So within just the space of 15 years, her her appeal has already, already transcended her, her Mexican roots as well. So why yeah, 2001? Uh, sorry, sorry, David, go ahead. I was just going to say quickly with the with the you know in the United States, Stephen Bragg in New Orleans has a chapel of Santa Muerte Church, um, and uh, again he's he, he's drawing on an, uh, a relationship that he had with uh, uh, I think Carandero from northern Mexico, but you know mm -hmm. he started up this he started up this temple fairly shortly after, you know, this went public. So it's, this again is, is really surprising to see is that you don't normally see this. Um, Scientology didn't grow this quickly, you know, and Scientology had a lot more focus and money behind it. Not to compare Santa Muerte and Scientology, but that's another example of, you know, kind of a spiritual belief that just pops up out of almost seemingly nowhere, at least in terms of the public conscious. And, um, you know, grows to become a, a force of, you know, a, almost political force. And, and interesting, interestingly, the two most prominent Santa Muerte leaders in the United States, Stephen Bragg, who you mentioned of New Orleans, and Areli Vasquez, a transgender uh, man from a small town in Guerrero outside of Acapulco, who's, who's really mm -hmm. the pioneer in New York City, 
um, Stephen is gay and, and, and she's transgender. And so, so there's, and, and yeah. I think both David and I have also seen on these Facebook pages too, there's definitely a disproportionate appeal among LGBT, both in Mexico and the United States. So that's really a, also an important facet of her appeal. That's yeah, and, and something, something again that doesn't, you know, uh, this, you don't immediately connect that with a, with a death iconography, but it has this resonance. And that's what's so fascinating about Santa Muerte is this, this belief or this relationship with the death has suddenly become huge. And, you know, one of the things that I've looked at is um, the iconography itself, a lot of it's drawn from um, taking images of, of a Grim Reaper and then putting Santa Muerte on it. So there's the shirts that have Santa Muerte on them. A lot of their images are drawn from other shirts that were just a, a Grim Reaper. But one of the interesting things is that in Walmart across the United States, they sell the shirts that the same image in Mexico City may have Santa Muerte on it and may have a prayer to Santa Muerte on the back. Whereas <laughs> here, that image is, you know, just a Grim Reaper shirt sold out in the Walmart section, you know. And <laughs> right. I actually, I encountered a woman um, in, uh, in Goodwill where um, she was a, a Latino woman, had two kids, and she was wearing this, you know, kind of heavy metal Grim Reaper shirt. And so I asked her, I was like, is that Santa Muerte? And she was like, oh, yeah, yep. So, you know, it's not like, it's it's not far off to look at the shirts at Walmart, even though they don't say Santa Muerte, and say, this is the iconography. You know, anybody who knows that iconography could very easily pick up this shirt, and it would be a representation to them of Santa Muerte. You know. Right, although I think we've also all seen on the Internet how, how in pop culture, pretty much every skull these days is being labeled. Yeah, 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 exactly. And on the opposite end, yeah, they, you know, when news, they, when the news covers it, you've got pictures of La Catrina, which was a Posada drawing. Yeah. Um, and they're mm -hmm. saying that that's Santa Muerte, and, yeah, you know, it's exactly. not. There's, it's there's a specific iconography to it. Right. Yeah, like the, the, the skull in the symbol of the German SS, one could say, oh, Santa Muerte, you know. But yeah, right. <laughs> obviously not. But let us, uh, let us go back to, to this, uh, how in 2001, Santa Muerte uh, uh, kind of like emerged from the underground and became uh, uh, known to, to the mainstream public. Yeah, Why I, 2001? I, I, how that happened? I love to tell this anecdote. So my parents-in-law are 85-year-old, have lived their entire lives in the western state of Michoacán, in the capital of Morelia, mm. and had never heard of Santa Muerte until I started doing my research seven years ago. This is to tell you that prior to 2001, you know, more than 99% of Mexicans had never heard of Santa Muerte. Today, you wouldn't find one Mexican from Yucatan to, to <laughs> Ciudad Juarez who's never heard of Santa Muerte. Yeah. So every what, what all changes is in 2001 is this humble quesadilla vendor from Mexico City's most notorious barrio of Tepito, Mm -hmm. decides on Halloween evening uh, 2001 that she's going to set outside her life-size effigy of Santa Muerte outside on the sidewalk in front of her home. Why does she do that? Because she, 
when she was selling quesadillas to neighbors and passersby, she had the life side image in her street side kitchen and the neighbors and passersby were spontaneously making floral offerings, tequila, chocolate, and the offerings just became so abundant in her small little quesadilla kitchen that they actually <laughs> ca- caused a fire once. And, and there literally was no more room for the skeleton in her quesadilla kitchen. So they decided to uh, to put her outside because there simply wasn't room. So this was not an intentional planned act to, to morph what had been uh, the object of clandestine underground devotion into the public cult. No, not at all. So that, 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 that they had a little ceremony in which they, they take the skeleton out of the closet, literally, uh, as that becomes, um, all souls, all saints D on November 1st. And that, that really marks the epic transition to, to the booming burgeoning public cult that it is today. So Doña Queta, her real name is Enriqueta Romero, is, is known as the godmother of the cult. And it's her shrine in Tepito, which is just uh, two and a half blocks from the Tepito subway station, easy access, is really, you know, the, the historic shrine and the must-see must Santa Muerte altar uh, in Mexico City. You know guys who, who, what my real name is? What? Miguel Romero. <laughs> <laughs> you know, As are a, couple, a couple million Mexican Romeros. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but so, and, uh, and also would like to point out to, to our listeners that uh, the barrio of Tepito has been always uh, legendary. We, we, it is known as El Barrio Bravo, you know, the rough neighbor. It's always been known to be a place, a gathering place of a, a, a lot of criminal activity, a lot of, a lot of gangsters and whatnot. You know, you really don't go there for, to, for sightseeing, even though obviously there's also a plenty of good, honest, hardworking neighbors who are trying to, to change the image of their, of their barrio. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, famous boxers, you know, Mexican uh, box fighters came out of that. that and part. the new the new mayor of Cuernavaca. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the famous, famous uh, former soccer star from Mexico just became mayor of uh, of the capital of the state of Morelia of Morelos. Exactly. Yeah, so obviously then apparently this was uh, completely spontaneous. And maybe, you know, that, that's what reason why he has gained so much power. If he had been orchestrated deliberately, maybe he, he would have eventually fizzled out by, by now. Do you, always, do you also think that maybe, uh, and maybe this is me speculating, that the events that have transpired in the United States you know, in 2001, obviously I'm talking about 9-11, had some influence in, in, in the gaining traction of, of the Santa Muerte cult. I mean, because let's be honest, I think that uh, a lot of people thought back then that the end of the world was nigh, you know, so maybe they, maybe they thought, you know, let's, let's get in good standing with Lady Death, you know, because <laughs> we don't know when she's yeah. going to call. And then that seems that it's going to be sooner rather than later. Yeah, actually, I would say I would say the bigger influence and the bigger context is that Mexico is a place of great death and dying 
over the last 10 years in which we're now approaching 100,000 deaths since former President Felipe Calderon ratcheted up the drug war Mm -hmm. at the beginning of his term in 2007. So I think I think that's kind of the more potent backdrop that the cult of death has proliferated in a time of great death and dying in Mexico that just doesn't stop because of the ongoing drug wars. And so I think there's a fair amount of Mexicans who feel like death might be around the corner for them, death might be imminent, who ask Santa Muerte to extend their life because who better to approach to ask for more grains in her hourglass of life than death herself? That, that's one of the interesting things about it spreading into the United States is that um, a lot of what you see here is not, if you're going to actually, there's there's multiple different Santa Muertes, I guess would be the easiest way to say it. Um, the the Santa Muerte that you see with um, Dona Keita and Enrique de Vargas, and even Enrique de Vargas and Dona Keita, I think, have a kind of different relationship with um with Santa Muerte. Um, it's a very leader-driven movement. So each different temple and shrine and, um, you know, kind of outcropping of places of worship, it's very individualistic in how Santa Muerte is approached. Um, and then up in the United States, there's a really heavy New Age um, and uh, kind of neo-pagan uh, appropriation of it. And so you see a very different uh kind of relationship with it. Some people try to stick traditional, um, but I think it's still really difficult for people to transition into where Santa Muerte would kind of exist within a traditional relationship uh, with a folk saint. And so a lot of it still kind of draws on sort of a new age goddess figure, you know. um, That's that's true, but, but remember that new age New Age influence is probably even greater in Mexico than it is here. So I, well, I, just, I just interviewed a couple of days ago a former Mexican cop who was telling me how he does Santa Muerte with chakras and tarot cards. And that's become really common in Mexico as well as, as New Age penetration is just kind of really, really deep in Mexico and throughout Latin America. Actually, that's what I yeah, wanted to ask you guys about is, is how does this differ, the practice of this? you know, of worshiping St. Death as opposed to other religions, like what is different in the practice itself? Like, so now I've sort of got some of that answer. Like it seems a little bit more, you know, paganistic or new agey or, or kind of goth, but is there any other like actual practices that, that differ quite a bit? Like what's what, if I was in this religion practicing, what what were some of the things that I would do that would be totally different? Well, in, in traditional, um, it is a folk saint. So in, in Mexico, um, especially, it's a much more traditional relationship, the, the kind of relationship you'd have with a saint. Um, and even the, even the New Age influences, it's interesting because, um, and that's something that uh, Andrew and I have talked about a lot, there's this, you know, the New Age down in Mexico was has different sources than the New Age in the United States, and they're actually drawing on an older New Age than we have here. Hmm. So, it, you know, they're drawing on, on material that, uh, you know, in Brazil, uh, Kardecian spiritism is really big. So yes. um, some, of the, some of the aspects of uh, the Santa Muerte cult in Latin America draw on spiritist beliefs. 
and um, channeling, and you know, you see a lot of stuff like that. In terms of actual uh, worship, it's very similar to, uh, you know, like I said, any kind of, of saint relationship. So you have an altar, you have an icon or multiple icons, um, you give offerings. Um, you know, Andrew had mentioned tequila, apples are really big, I think marigolds, uh, different types of flowers that he would give her. Um, if you're into you know, pito you know, marijuana. <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the big one. Yeah, you know, you, she, she smokes with you, so, um, you know, you share share weed with her, and it's it's a very visceral, street level. Right, street so, level. so much... Much of the way, much of the way that most Mexicans and, and, and most, most Latinos here in the United States approach her as just as David was saying is, is how they would approach a Catholic saint. Um, because remember, Mexico is still 82% Catholic, the second largest Catholic population on earth. And while Catholicism is definitely in decline in Mexico, it yeah. still kind of shapes the, the overarching culture. And so we have, I mean, the defining public Santa Muerte ritual is the Santa Muerte rosary service. And this is the same epic rosary prayer that's dedicated to the Virgin, just just replacing some of the, the dedicate, dedicatory lines to Santa Muerte instead of the Virgin. And so, yeah, for, for still the great majority of devotees, it's it's part of their folk or or informal Catholicism that informs the way they go about venerating uh, the goddess of death. You know, one of the, the things that uh, I feel is uh, the, the main drives of this, uh, this religion, why people who uh, may leave Catholicism and em may embrace Santa Muerte is because what I feel is that this is a religion for uh, for the despondent, you know, for people who feel powerless and uh, who feel feel cheated by by the ch Catholic Church, that they feel that the Church is siding or is on the side of the powerful. So, so they maybe they feel that Santa Muerte is more fair to them it's like the say the saying here that, that we have in mexico la muerte ja agarra parejo the death right right death doesn't discriminate death exactly doesn't discriminate, doesn't discriminate. Right. treats both both the poor and the rich equal you know exactly exactly and and given given the just uh, shocking inequalities in Mexico, the gap between rich and poor, where yes. you have one of the world's richest men with Carlos Slim, yet uh -huh. over 50% of Mexicans live in poverty. That mm -hmm. equalizing side that she swings is a very, very powerful image. And I think you're very right. And, and who is most really felt kind of uh, marginalized and ostracized by the Catholic Church? Again, the LGBT folk, right? Mm, exactly. Yes, good point. The the other thing I I think is is an attraction for this is that people, you know, I mean, only now is the mainstream starting to look at scientific evidence of the afterlife and and communications of the afterlife and near death experiences and all this. So we are living in that schizophrenic society where people that are open minded to these things, um, they don't really have anywhere to go either. So their death, like death and life beyond death, is kind of fascinating because of, I mean, how many people have had personal experiences with, you know, communication with death, dead loved ones and all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of not too hard to go that way instead of the traditional religious route. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's, that's 
I think that's an excellent point. I, I think particularly in places like the U.S. and Canada, her appeal is also part of a of a general kind of rethinking and recalibration of death and, and, you know, partly influenced by Mexico in which there's a much more holistic view of, the, of death being a natural part of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, one of the things um, in terms of the, the kind of resonance that she has with past traditions in Europe, um, in Spain um, and Galatia, there, uh, Claude Le Cateau, who's a folklorist um, writing on, medieval and uh, pre-medieval cultures of uh, death in some sense, but the relationship with death. Um, There's actually, uh, I think it's in Spain, where they do a yearly procession of people who had near-death experiences. Wow. So people who have died and then come back or, you know, have been medically dead at least, and then, you know, come back and have had some sort of vision. Um, They have a procession for these people. And in the Middle Ages... This uh, this tie-in with this kind of like queen of of the dead or queen of you know the elves and fairies and that mm-hmm. which actually tie into a cult of the dead in Europe um, was very similar to what we see with Santa Marta in terms of the visions and the the stuff like that. So it's interesting. You know, you mentioned the the rise in people talking about near death experiences and that. Yeah. Well, Santa Marta in you know at least one of the forms that we can see kind of leading into the current Santa Muerte was over all that stuff. You know, St. Death was a figure that was related to near-death experiences and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. there is this odd resonance in culture that, that comes out, you know. Um, and also I think, too, one of the things with uh, her popularity that I don't know that we really touched on because, um, you know, yes, she was she came out as kind of like a narco-saint, um, uh, but in re- I think the what you had said about the um, the dispossessed is really accurate because as mm-hmm. you know Andrews posted a lot of pictures in that and he just mentioned you know uh, a police officer who was a devotee um, it's it she really bridges the gaps I mean it's it's yeah. a huge it's amazing to see the people that come to her her demographic because it is policemen it's uh, you know prison guards in jail. Um, it's lawyers, it's, um, you know, taxi drivers, uh, Enrique de Vargas, you know, a, a food vendor, um, you know, just normal, there's normal folks too. It's not just narcos. I think a lot of what gets focused on is the, the narco element. Um, but you know, right. it's, it's a very widespread belief. Right, right. So that, that heterogeneity, diversity, Mm-hmm. of her devotional base in just the space of a decade and a half is very impressive too because yes she might have this special appeal to the marginalized and dispossessed yet there's physicians and there's psychologists and there's doctors who mm-hmm. figure among her devotees as well have you guys seen any distortion in the media like are people are people like this looks it's, it's so easy to just uh uh i don't know if marginalized is the word or 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 disinform people about this being some sort of evil cult or whatever, but are, are people, is there any evil doings like people killing in the name of her or is it more of whatever you would hear? And that is kind of a distortion in the media because of the iconography. And it's so easy to just, uh, you know, push that aside as some sort of like devilish cult. Yeah. Excellent question. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, 90% plus 
of the coverage over her, over her has mostly been kind of monolithically portraying her as the narco saint, as the patroness of of drug cartels in Mexico. However, over the last two or three years, and hopefully it's because because somewhat of of the influence that that David and I have had in our own research, I, I, you do see more nuanced articles coming out in on both sides of the border as well. So I think there's been some improvement in coverage. But but obviously, with the ongoing drug war and the whole you know theme of violence and a chapo and such, I mean, I mean that that sells in the media as well. So that continues, I think, to be the overarching narrative. However, there has been you know some somewhat more nuance lately, and and you know the fact that we're having this discussion is part of that nuance. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Yeah, what, there is. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, there, there is also the, um, there have been murders associated with Santa Muerte. Um, that's one of the, the complexities in, in kind of researching her is that, um, a lot, the, the FBI, um, there's a, a fellow agent bunker. I can't remember his first name, but, um, he's done a lot of research on kind of the, the darker side of this. And, <laughs> With the way that the drug war is, um, it's really difficult to tie it into Santa Muerte totally. Um, I think one of the worries and one of the more nuanced readings of what, at least in the FBI reports and the military reports, is that it has the potential to become a focus for a more violent form Mm. of kind of religious criminality. Um, It hasn't so far gotten as bad as it could possibly get. And as Andrew said, you know, the vast majority of uh, Morteros and Mortistas are, you know, they're not, uh, you know, involved in, in a kind of violent death cult or something like that. Um, but, there, you know, there have been instances where people isolated have taken it upon themselves to, you know, give sacrifice to death in a way that was, you know, human sacrifice or, you know, something more violent. So um, there was one case of suicide, um, and it's unclear of exactly how much that is because in police reports they don't they shy away from um, identifying spiritual or religious uh, things that may be involved in the crime. It's it's real difficult to to draw those two things together, and so you know you don't really know what the what the real numbers are on it. Yeah, I, I think I think what I I think it's accurate to say that in some way, you know, that she's not really the patroness of, of narcos and the cartels, but really kind of one of her roles is the patroness of the drug war itself. Remembering yeah. that she also has a very large contingent of followers on the law enforcement side in Mexico, state police, municipal police. My nephew is a state prison guard in Michoacan in the capital of Morelia. And when I interviewed him five years ago, he, he told me that a quarter of his fellow prison guards are devotees of Santa Muerte. Wow. And so so it's 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 all sides on the ongoing drug war in Mexico who, who are devotees of death, not only the, the cartel members themselves. Do you think we're looking at is, some sort of evolution in religion? Like, do you think in, you know, in a hundred years, this could be something that's running alongside with Catholic Catholicism or Christianity? 
Well, it's always, I mean, up to this point, it's been attendant to Catholicism. Um, the, the thing that you got to look at with a religion in particular, um, religions have a metaphysics behind them, and they usually have some sort of, uh, you know, theology to it. Um, Santa Muerte is incredibly individualistic. Um, the main thing that ties it together is the iconography. Um, and then there's some rituals that, you know, people share and stuff. But, uh, you know, in terms of propitiating the saint like a saint, but it's, it's incredibly individualistic. So to say that it would become a, a solidified religion, um, I don't think that it would. I don't think it has the the internal components that would allow it to do that. Hmm. And I think that's, that, that may be one of the interesting questions in, in thinking about an evolution of how people are treating their spirituality today, or at least a, a change in how they're looking at their spirituality, is because it does lack all the things that you would normally see. I mean, I mentioned Scientology earlier. One of the things that Scientology has is an internal metaphysic. It has a an overarching story to how the, the cosmos runs, you know. Um, with Santa Muerte, you may get some kind of stories with that in terms of how people relate to Santa Muerte and relate to death as this figure. Um, but there's no internally consistent story. You know? there, there isn't um, now, though, but remember, it's only been public for 15 years, and we're yeah, already yeah. seeing strong attempts at institutionalization, especially yeah. with, uh, with our friend Enriqueta Vargas in Tutitlan. Yeah is trying to unite a lot of the different temples and, and major shrines in Mexico. And even she's been to New York City twice to yeah. the to the annual fiesta in August of Areli Vasquez, the pioneer there. It also an attempt to bring, I mean, she's really kind of brought Areli Vasquez under her, her command as well. So there already is that attempt at institutionalization. I think, you know, whether or not it's going to be success uh, only time will tell, but remember, it's only 15 years out at this point. Correct me yeah, if I'm wrong, but I think that there's already been some kind of uh, escission or division between the followers of Santa Muerte. I think there was some kind of group who wanted to come like uh, separated away from, from, the, from the main Santa Muerte group, and they even were starting to depict Santa Muerte, not as the classical Grim Reaper um, iconography, but else, like instead of that, the angel uh, of death. Yeah, more like a, a like a, a a woman with chalk white skin. Yes, you know? yes that that was that was um, the former so called Archbishop of Santa Muerte, David Romo, who is currently serving a sixty six year. Uh, prison sentence for belonging to a kidnapping ring in Mexico City. He was the the the, the real Santa Muerte Godfather, as uh, just as uh, uh, Doña Queta was the godmother. He founded the first legal church in Mexico, Santa Muerte Church, just a few miles away from from Doña Queta's shrine in Tepito in 2003, and for two years actually ran a legal Santa Muerte church until the Mexican federal government revoked, rescinded his legal status in 2005. So, right, he's the one who came up with this image of El Ángel de la Muerte, or, or the angel of death, apparently based on the on his on his very beautiful wife. And I've met his, I've met his wife, and the original statue does look like his wife. 
So he's the one who came up with that, but it never went anywhere. It was a tremendous flop. Even even those vendors who tried selling the angel, the pretty porcelain skin angel death outside of his temple uh, weren't weren't having much success. Is, is that the iconography that has like the you can see on, you know, Google image images, for example, the. The makeup with the white painted and the red around the eyes and the black eyes with uh, kind of the spider web on the top. Like, is it that style of it? No, no, no. More, more angelic. I mean, a very beautiful uh, raven-haired porcelain-skinned woman. Huh. Okay. Yeah, the, what, what you're talking about is more of a, a an adaption of the Day of the Dead. Oh, right. Geez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's yeah. where it is. Yeah. There's a couple yeah. of restaurants that opened up here just recently right near my house and they both have that, that skull, that, uh, the day of the dead skull. As, oh yeah. As, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's just become amazingly, um, hip and chic. In fact, in fact, in Johannesburg, South Africa, a few months ago, they opened up a rest, a, a soak, a Mexican restaurant actually called Santa Muerte. Oh, <laughs> there's a beer. There's a beer brewed in the U.S. There's a beer brewed in Brazil, Germany, and the U.K. All called Santa Muerte. So that's a whole nother discussion. Kind of her her merchandising and and the commercialization of her, of her image as well. Huh. Yeah. There's yeah, almost... and that's <laughs> go, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. It, it's it is amazing to see that to to see it spread um, and to see the, the popularity of the, the death image. And then also to see, you know, that in some, in some places it does harken back to Santa Muerte, you know I mean? Such as in Athens, Georgia, where I encountered an actual, you know, a woman who is a worshiper of Santa Muerte, but then you can go over to the Walmart across the street and get a t-shirt, you know, that has a figure that's similar to Santa Muerte, you know, but nobody in Walmart's really thinking about that. So it is, it's very interesting to see how this icon has, has spread out, you know, sometimes with more meaning and sometimes with less, you know. Let me ask you guys something, you know, me as a, as a fortunate who was a former Catholic, I'm still fascinated by the phenomena of uh, the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, you know, in places like Fatima, 1917. That was a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> let's okay let's get back to that don't worry and Mechucori and 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 Carabandal in Spain and many other places you know there is also uh, claims of people who have actual uh, physical contact with an entity or some kind of uh, vision that they uh, relate to the Virgin Mary you know and then and there's even I don't know uh, in, in the case of I think it was in Cairo in the 1960s, there's even a few black and white pictures that were allegedly taken during a time where, where uh, people were claiming to see the, the Virgin Mary uh, appearing uh, uh, above or in front of a Coptic church. So my question will be if there's by now have been some people, some cases of actual apparitions or people claiming to have witnessed an apparition of, of Santa Muerte. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. In fact, I think just a few days ago, David on Twitter posted a photo of somebody 
who had an image of Santa Muerte on a tortilla. And of course, in the Mexican... Well, yeah, okay. Nothing more (laughs) more iconographic than that. So yeah, (laughs) windows, tortillas, yeah, the same. We're seeing the same. I I, I have a prominent follower in Facebook who's kind of the the priestess of Santa Muerte in Cancun. Mm -hmm. And uh, she often will see Santa Muerte on a banana peel. So uh, yeah, this is this is common stuff, and it, and it follows the the similar pattern to the Marian apparitions. Well, yeah, well, Kim, okay, so those are cases of pareidola, yeah, yeah, people who have they, seen. They also there are people who've seen um, in terms of like an apparition and apparition, like not just not just visions in an object, but there are people who claim to have encountered uh, okay an okay. apparition, and there's one of the and it's never been anything like. Um, the Marian apparitions where you've got, you know, in Fatima, you've got an entire town of people plus towns over seeing a phenomenon occur. Yeah, 5,000 plus or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's never been that big, but they're definitely within the, in terms of like private vision. Um, yeah, there have been apparitions. That's actually fairly common. Um, the, uh, the other thing is, um, in eggs, it's, it's a lot of it, like the banana peel, um, you know, there's divination with banana peels, actually an Afro-Caribbean tradition. Um, so, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not quite as, <laughs> as, as innocuous, you know, as it may seem like there is a, some sort of resonance there that goes deeper than just seeing a, a vision in a banana peel. But um, it's right. mostly I, more private. I would say that, you know, apparitions are actually common currency because because people at the grassroots in Mexico and Latin America believe in apparitions. So I've had scores of devotees, you know, tell me that Santa Muerte has appeared in the shape of a ghostly woman. And usually mm-hmm. the room will go cold. I had uh, another teenager in Tepito say that Santa Muerte appeared and pulled her back to save her just at the time that a gang member was going to thrust a dagger into her stomach. So yeah, wow. that happens all the time because, because right. people at the grassroots there believe in, in, in ghosts and, and in apparitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it makes you me have, think about, yeah, sorry. I was going to just say Enrique Vargas in uh, Tulan, um, is actually a visionary in terms of she regularly has dreams um, and visions that she reports. Um, and her son is the first saint of Santa Muerte. Um, Commander Panther uh, was murdered and kind of led to her taking over the organization Santa Muerte International. And since then, she has. Um, you know, reported visions of him. People have reported visions of him, and he's become the first saint under Santa Muerte, um, which is interesting because that's something that really never you don't you don't usually see folk saints reading other saints. So again, that kind of sets out Santa Muerte into a different category than you know the average folk saint. Exactly. Exactly, and shows. And shows, you know, the, 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 the power that she has, that, that she's now spawning other, uh, you know, lesser folk saints who, who are to serve as mediators to communicate with her. Right. Yeah, the same way that in the Catholic Church, you have all this plethora of saints, which was supposed to be like <laughs> uh, the heavenly lobbyists, you know, <laughs> are supposed to, right. you're supposed to, to knock on their door so they can 
put up a, a good name for you with with the big man uh, uh, from exactly. the Golden Throne, right? Exactly. But this is more parallel to like specifically the Virgin of Guadalupe spawning mm -hmm. a junior saint because you shouldn't go directly to Guadalupe. You need to go to this intermediary saint who will connect you with Guadalupe. Yeah, yeah, all this yeah, heavenly bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Reflecting, reflecting the bureaucracy of the Mexican government. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys think there's any parallel over the last, uh, you know, even decade and a half with the exodus down to Peru to do ayahuasca and this psychedelic kind of revolution that's happening? They actually are. Writing for Reality Sandwich, which is uh, a magazine that's kind of at the forefront of the psychedelic movement, mm -hmm. they want to stay as far away from anything like Santa Muerte. Wow. Um, yeah, that it is not <laughs> it is not caught on with the psychedelic crowd. That is, it's a I don't know. It must be like a, a joy buzz or something. It's not <laughs> not not quite a. They don't want the death saint hanging around. Um, it's Although yeah. It, it has. It's been completely, even though, even though she is a patron saint of marijuana, you know, like, no, <laughs> doesn't want it to, you know, that's not. Yeah, right. Not she doesn't, she doesn't dabble in hallucinogens yet, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's not, uh, it's been interesting. I mean, because they, it, it does have, I think Eric Davis, who wrote Technosis. Um, oh, yeah. had an interesting kind of almost allergic reaction to Santa Muerte. He was really interested before he went to Mexico City. And then um, when he actually encountered Santa Muerte in Mexico City, he became much less interested. Right, um, right after was, my book launch there, right? He said, I, I don't want anything yeah. to do with that death yeah. thing. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly, <laughs> that's yeah. He said that <laughs> he wasn't expecting uh, the to have the kind of feelings that he had around it, and mm. he didn't like it. So... Um, I had another friend, um, Elliot Edge, who uh, does some stuff for Reality Sandwich or Did, and he writes and produces videos and stuff. And he had a more positive reaction to it, but it was equally similar where he, you know, started looking into it, got kind of creeped out, had a really powerful um, kind of philosophical moment with it, and then quickly got away from it. So... Yeah, and, and I, I think that also resonates. We should point out that there's a lot of Mexicans who are scared as hell of her. In fact, I have relatives, yeah. my wife's relatives in Michoacan are so scared of her, they will not utter the, her name. They will not yeah. say Santa yeah. Muerte, yeah. fearing that that might bring their own death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was... Someone said that on uh, an interview I did with Elliot, that was one of the comments was like, I wouldn't even speak her name. Exactly. And I found that that's been interesting in the research too, is, you know, if you, if you don't just go up to people and say like, Hey, Santa, where say like, that's not, <laughs> you can't do that. You gotta be very <laughs> circumspect, kind of feel them out. Like there is, there's a seriousness to it that, um, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't reach a lot of different counterculture areas. Right, it's so been interesting to see. It. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say it's been interesting to see it grow into the neo-pagan movement because they have a lot of the, you know, trying to have a more positive philosophy on life and that kind of thing. So it's been interesting to see when Santa Muerte goes into that, um, kind of stripping her of some of her power and mystique um, in order to almost make her safer for that milieu, you know, that that way of thinking. 
Exactly. And it's, it's for me, it's really interesting to see the kind of complete disconnect many times among the white American devotees who many times just really aren't cognizant of what's going on with the drug wars and such in Mexico. And when they'll see the occasional news article linking Santa Muerte to cartels, you know, they're shocked by it. And so <laughs> there's just like this disconnect of what goes on in Mexico, you know, even though we share a 2000 mile border and, and, and often what many devotees don't understand goes down in Mexico. So, David, uh, you seem to be very knowledgeable about what's happening in the state of uh, Morelia, or Michoacana, sorry, that which uh, to people who are listening is probably at the, at the core of the hurricane of the current uh, drug war here in Mexico. Um, my question would be, do you think that uh, the arrival of the uh, 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 rise of the uh, these drug cartels who call themselves the Knights Templars, which seem to have had some kind of really weird Christian mysticism vibe around them. I mean, they, they, they even apparently had these weird ass ceremonies with all these, the Templar crosses and their, even with swords and whatnot. Do you think that was a response to the uh, to the influence, the nascent influence of Santa Muerte. No, no, I, no th- they're unrelated. Um, okay. The 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 founder of La Familia Michoacana, which became the Knights Templar Cartel, and I know a lot about Michoacan because my wife is is from there. She's and I mm-hmm. did a fair amount of my research for Santa Muerte there. Mm-hmm. The founder the founder of those two cartels, um, who was recently killed just last year, and yeah. himself became a folk saint, a narco folk. <laughs> He, he spent a lot of his youth in, uh, in California. In fact, that's where he became a narco in California. And in California, um, became connected with evangelical Protestant churches. And so more than anything, it's this kind of strange interpretation of evangelical Protestantism that informed his kind of Knights Templar ideology that, you know, presenting themselves as the defenders of the saviors of the state of Michoacan, particularly against the predations of the of the feared Zeta, Zeta cartel. So it's really evangelical Protestantism, which has also been growing quickly in Mexico that that, you know, informed his kind of strange spin uh, on this pseudo religious uh, uh, ideology underpinning his his cartel in Michoacan. So two separate things. Yeah, but were the Zetas followers of Santa Muerte? Yeah, right. If if there's any two cartels that probably can be more associated with Santa Muerte, it would be the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel. Mm-hmm. So that's what yeah. I, I guess. That's where I was going, though. That maybe you know, if if the Zetas present themselves as the followers of Santa Muerte, you know, maybe these other guys try to embrace these. Uh, Christian-like philosophy that might have even found to be appealing to to the common citizens of Michoacan sense. okay, so these guys, you know, are killing us and they are the, you know, the followers of the devil, (laughs) you know, (laughs) these other guys also are not that, not not that great, but I'll still, uh, at least, you know, they, they have a 
cross, you know, on their chest. So you maybe they're not that bad. Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds really logical. But as you know, things in Mexico are so complex. Yeah. So in many of the towns that were under the influence of the cartels, particularly in the hot lands of Tierra Caliente, yeah, you would yeah. also see lots of Santa Muerte there as well. And so some of the Knights Templar themselves also were devotees <laughs> of Santa Muerte. So as you know, you know, it's so complicated. A lot of the paramilitary paramilitary self-defense groups in Michoacan are, are narcos themselves. So yes. uh, it's hard to parse all that out. Mm-hmm. And that's where really, I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use that word resonance because that's, that's what you see when you start to look into stuff like this is that you don't so much see um, these things being planned out or, or that you see them more playing out in a way that they emerge Organically in culturally. Yeah. Yeah. Organically and in culturally viable ways that there's kind of a language, there, a symbolic language, you know, like the Knights Templar and then, you know, you've got Santa Muerte and there seems to be some sort of communication that could happen between those symbols. But, um, you know, it's, it's more of an organic growth as opposed to, you know, something that's planned out as, you know, I mean, the, the popularity of Santa Muerte in the United States amongst, you know, the mall going crowd is, is kind of an example of that where, you know, what a hot uh, topic, right? <laughs> yeah. Hot topic sells Santa Muerte. I think they do now, right? Like there's, they right. actually have products that have Santa Muerte on it. Right. And it's, it's just amazing because, you know, in Mexico city, the, um, I mean, the fact that you can't just go out and say Santa Muerte without possibly offending someone very deeply shows the, the level of power and seriousness that the, the spirituality has in certain places, you know, and then there's something like, and, and it is tied into, you know, at the very least, you know, as Andrew said, the patron saint of the narco war in the sense that this figure emerges from the violence and horror that have come out of, um, you know, what's going on in the Southern U S and, you know, Northern Mexico, it's just, it's crazy. And then, you know, Hot Topic has the shirt. <laughs> it's just in the mall and it's cool and whatever, you know. That's bizarre. So, right. So, so it's interesting that, you know, there is no Santa Muerte beer in Mexico, at least yet. There is no Santa Muerte restaurant in Mexico yet, right? <laughs> right. But here, yeah. And then here you've got that stuff. Well, and that was what you, you had mentioned. Um, I think it was on NPR Austin, the fact that in the United States, because of freedom of religion, people like Stephen Bragg are actually able to create a nonprofit, you know, legally recognized church of Santa Muerte, which can't happen in Mexico. Exactly. Exactly. So if we're talking about the future of this new religious movement, in a way, it's got more fertile soil to to grow in the United States, because what what David's pointing out, the greater degree of religious liberty here in the United States where you can legally found a church and call it Santa Muerte and not have the kind of restrictions where the still semi-monopolist Catholic church has in Mexico that was able to pressure the Mexican federal government and have have uh, David Romo's church shut down in yeah. 2005. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Christianity arose in the Middle East, right? But it wasn't right. until it, take, it took roots in Rome, in Europe, when it became such a, a, a global superpower, you know, that it when was... It became, had, right, when it became the religion of empire. Exactly. 
So maybe the same will happen with Santa Muerte. Like, okay, so it originated in Mexico, but it wasn't until it migrated to the United States that it maybe it will it will gain influence elsewhere. Yeah, and that's I mean that's an excellent point, and that we already see that happens with other cultural aspects. In fact. For example, we Americans now drink more tequila per capita than you Mexicans. It's amazing. Yeah. We we eat more guacamole than you do. And and so a lot of the a lot of the projection of the image of Mexican culture globally comes through the United States, not not directly through Mexico. So yeah, I mean that's that that very well could happen with Santa Muerte. Yeah, definitely. And we're a part of it. <laughs> Does right. <laughs> right. And and bringing Canada into the discussion, we know that Santa Muerte is in Canada. And I, I was involved with a couple of journalists recently who did reports on her presence in both Toronto and Montreal. So so she's there as well. Do they get does it get any flack for being the devil? You know, how like does the church get up in arms at all? Is there any blowback against her saying she's the devil in disguise or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, a high ranking Vatican official, uh, Italian Cardinal Ravasi, uh, when he mm. went to Mexico City on a four day tour in spring t 2013, condemned Santa Muerte by name on each of the four days he was there, calling her blasphemy, anti-religion, the religion of the culture of death. And so one of the one of the big things I'm really curious about, because I'm going down to to Mexico to cover Pope Francis's visit next week, is whether or not Pope Francis will condemn Santa Muerte. And if he does, will he actually call her out by name? That's a good question. Yeah, he seems to. Yeah, she's now starting to. She's starting to appear in Italy as well. Um, one of the one of the other kind of. Studies of Santa Muerte, written books on Santa Muerte outside of Mexico, is a book that was written by an Italian guy. And uh, it's, you know, there's the exorcist in the, the what is that, what is that called, Andrew? The Association yeah. of Exorcists? Is that the. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm that. trying to. Yeah, he, he's an Italian journalist. His last name is La Russo. Yeah, and he did, he did a book on it. And the exorcists are now starting to, to mention it in their, um, you know, talking about the what kind of elements of Satan that they're seeing crop up in culture. Santa Marte has reached the level where the exorcists, as an organized group, are starting to talk about her. So. Yeah, there's even, a, there's even a, a bishop in West Texas who exercises people uh, who've been dealing with Santa Muerte. So also happening in the United States. Hmm. So people and it have... does, it, Sorry. Uh, and there are, there are examples, too, um, in southern Mexico where some of the Santa Muerte temples do have, like, active elements of, of organized Satanism. Um, I mean, there's one... That Vice had a, a picture right. series up on where they actually had a figure of Satan that was one of their main altar pieces, and they were doing specific rituals that were similar to rituals that are given to San Lamarte um, in Argentina, but um, really seemed to be specifically what people would think of when they think of Satanism. I mean, there were like meat offerings and 
they were doing uh, a ritual healing with cuts and that. So there yeah, is the, some. It's about PR. Oh, the uh, British photographer who has a new book, a uh, new photo book on Santa Muerte featured that place. I think it's uh, I think it's a Santa Muerte temple in the uh, central state of Hidalgo. No. Where, where yep. you've got, yeah. got these very kind of vivid, vivid portrayals of Satan. You're right. Well, I remember that uh, uh, back in the late '80s, uh, before the uh, the dro- the war drugs came in full swing in, in the early 21st century. Uh, the whole thing uh, that, that the, they talked about in the media was the, the narco satanicos, you know, there was this right. idea that, yeah, that narco groups were conducted, you know, satanic rituals and human sacrifices and whatnot. And obviously that's, that seems like, you know, tabloid-like kind of news, but I don't know, maybe uh, it's hard uh, not to think that maybe there was something to to. to, to well, that, that was actually that was actually her first photo op. Santa Marte's first photo op was, <laughs> right. uh, oh. mm-hmm. was with the narco satanico, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it was because um, his uh, um, his name is slipping. Andrew, I get it. It's Adolfo Constanza, a Cuban American yeah. who'd set up yeah. shop in, in northern Mexico. Yeah, and Constanza was uh, he mixed. Uh, again, a, a very syncretic uh, mix of beliefs centering on magic, but he mm-hmm. mixed um, Paulo Mayombe, um, which is yeah, uh, right. a Cuban a Cuban religion, Afro yeah. Afro Caribbean belief. Mm-hmm. Um, he mixed a little bit, supposedly, of Haitian voodoo. Um, he had taught, there was in his 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 biography is you know it's one of those biographies where it's all based on what people have said, you know, and on stories that he told. So it's unclear exactly how much is true and how much isn't, but it seems like he had a lot of touch with various practitioners in Haiti, um, Florida, like areas of Florida. And then also in Cuba, but with Paulo Mayambe, a little bit of Haitian voodoo, some Santeria mixed in, um, but had a statue of Santa Muerte, which is the same statue, um, that you see in Mexico city today. Uh, mass produced. He had that statue on his altar uh, at, when he was at, caught when they were doing at murders. his at his ranch where he where he murdered twenty two people, including uh, inclu- uh, including a University of Texas college student whose remains were found in one of the ritual cauldrons. Jeez. Yeah, and that yeah he's and he you know he very much was doing ritual human sacrifice for magical purposes. His whole thing was that he was selling protection to uh, the narcos. So he would, mm. you know, do a, a ritual sacrifice to ensure their protection and also promise, um, you know, immunity to bullets and various mm-hmm. things, which have been part of the magical conversation since, you know, time immemorial. People have always yeah, tried yeah. to have certain rituals and that to block swords, arrows, you know, bullets and that. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually that's something that in Africa... Uh, it's really popular going to, you know, a practitioner to try to get a blessing so that the bullets don't affect you. So. Sure. And that was kind of the whole, whole thing of the new Lord's army as well. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, exactly. Yep. They had their, their invisible shields for bullets. And I should mention that, that San La Muerte in Argentina, actually one of the old school practices for him 
is to insert bullet fragments of somebody who's been murdered into your skin as an offering to San La Muerte. Right, and, and I feel that, yeah, there's certainly some kind of, uh, if not direct connections, at least some uh, uh, really interesting parallels between the, the Santa Muerte cult and also these other Afro-Caribbean uh, 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 religions, you know, the, lo the, the, loa, the cult of the Loas, uh, Santeria, right. the cult of the Orishas, you know, uh, uh, I, I feel that there is a lot of similarities between Santa Muerte and some uh, iconic figure like Baron Samedi. Like this idea yeah. that th th you have these uh, supernatural entities that you plead to, that you pray to, and yet you perform sacrifices to. And these are very, I don't know, either whimsical. These are not like either uh, overtly good or bad entities. These are, you, you only recognize them as powerful supernatural entities and that then you do some sacrifices to them in order to gain favors about them. But you, 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 do, not, you do not expect these supernatural uh, deities to be uh, good, like in Christianity, like you, you always expect Christ to be good and the Virgin Mary to be good. Uh, and ob obviously then you have, you have also in Christianity, you have to have this dichotomy between if something, if something good happens to your life, it's always uh, because of Christ. And if something bad happens to you, well, that's the devil's fault. I, I feel that in these other religions, both the good and the bad comes from from the, the gods of the deities. And it's you have to do your labors in order to be in, in their good favor. You know, am I overtly wrong? In, in no, that's true. I mean, the, the African diaspora religions are religions of, of, of moral shades of gray. They don't have those yeah, yeah. absolute dichotomies and dualities that the monotheistic religions have. That's true. So, so you're really kind of more concerned with the efficacy of the Orisha mm -hmm. or of the deity. You know, what, what can they help you out with? Yeah. Uh, more, more than kind of larger, um, you know, Christian type moral concerns, as you're pointing out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a constant relationship as well. Um, you know, yeah. there are, when you see, if folk Christianity still maintains some of that, you know, um, I'm living in Georgia right now, and, you know, the, there's a kind of, and charisma, excuse me, charismatic Christianity has a lot of that, where um, it's, much more based on a daily uh, kind of walk with God as opposed to, um, you know, like a one-time, like, I believe in Jesus and it's all good kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you see with the African diaspora religions and a lot of folk religion in general, um, although African diaspora religions aren't really folk religions, uh, a different thing, but in religions that are communal in that way, uh, you see a lot more of a relationship developed, and that's really where, you know, the altar comes in, where your altar space becomes that place where you can go and have that communication, and the the spirits are much more present. Um, you know, and in in cases like the you know with uh, Loa or Orisha, um, not so much with Orisha in Santeria, but there are other Orisha-based um, practices where possession becomes the thing. So it's not mm -hmm. only an mm -hmm. right. Candomblé, Brazil. Candomblé, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and Umbanda, um, and Kimbanda, too, and Kimbanda being... Uh, and it's interesting with the African diaspora, and I think that you see this with Santa Muerte, is that there's often multiple uses of the same symbology. Um, so, in example, with the Kendoble, and then uh, Umbanda, and then Kimbanda, Kimbanda is considered witchcraft and evil, and deals with um, Exu and Pomogira, who are... Uh, Basically, figures Exu is is usually depicted as a kind of like devil type figure, um, but a spirit of the streets, you know. So they deal with them. Pomogira is like a like a street dancer. Um, so like they have these spirits that they deal with, which are spirits of the streets. And what's interesting with Santa Muerte coming out of Latin America, there's certain aspects of the belief that have picked that up, where Santa Muerte then becomes the queen of the dead and literally a queen of spirits. So if you were going to work with her magically, um, you know, and there's a difference between the people who pray for her efficacy versus a curandero or a brujo uh, who would actually be working with Santa Muerte. Um, and that's, it's interesting, Stephen Bragg picked up the, the magical tradition. Um, he focuses on the three colors, which white, red, and black. Um, which traditionally were what was used in uh, Karen Durismo and Brujeria when you were working with Santa Muerte. Um, but the, that she becomes then almost like a leader of the spirits that you're going to work with. So there's a sense of her being like the queen of the dead, and then you can go to her, and then she'll send spirits out to, to do the work. You know? and, and interestingly, Stephen Bragg also is an in, initiate in voodoo as well, Mm-hmm. Although he keeps his his voodoo practice in Santa Muerte very separate, right? Let's talk about voodoo. I mean, uh, I remember how in Haiti, you know, during the time of uh, when we'll still have this uh, very uh, tyrannical government, and, uh, there was this secret police. I think I believe the name was Chonchon Makut. To, to Makut, yeah. And so the, this was a, a political, a, a secret police that used voodoo practices in order to, to enforce the will of, of the government and to, to yeah, terrorize the populace. So I wonder if, if something like that could happen, you know, with something like, uh, I don't know, Santa Muerte, if, if it could be embraced by some kind of government agency in order to to keep their their rule over over their people yeah that that happened in haiti though because because both um father and son dictators uh papa and baby doc duvalier were were manipulating this paramilitary force the tonton makut Um, with voodoo. So, I mean, it's hard to imagine in the near future something analogous like that happening in Mexico, particularly when, when, you know, the Mexican elite in the Mexican church is condemning Santa Muerte as satanic on a weekly basis. So I I don't think I see that happening in the near future. And also the other thing to to recognize with that that instance was that in um, Vodun or Vodun, it's that, that practice is actually an African practice. It's called the Justice Society. And um, part of the... You can see this in European witchcraft, too. Uh, part of the, the relationship that witchcraft has to the community um, 
and I'm not saying that voodoo in its you know traditional way is witchcraft, but when it's used in this kind of darker way as a almost like a, a secret police thing, it's it's this, it's a way to develop a deeper, more spiritual aspect of uh, policing, basically. And that's where the voodoo, or that's where the legend comes out of zombie. Zombie was right, actually exactly. uh, a way of, it's a punishment. So right. if somebody in your in your town was, you know, uh, just not doing right, and they were consistently bad, the thing was, was, well, you could become a zombie, and then sometimes that was actively <laughs> sought out to punish this person for being, uh, you know, a bad member of the community. So in in Haiti, it wasn't there was an underlying basis for that happening. There was already that in there with Santa Muerte. I think you just you see that more in terms of it being a centralized iconography that can provide kind of a neutral ground for narcos and lawyers mm. and police and all that to kind of communicate under Santa Muerte. Um, but you don't see it where you where you have like a you know. A, a Knights Templar only under Santa Muerte kind of thing going out and yeah, doing vigilantism yeah. or something, you know. Yeah. So listen, I'm I'm gonna have to cut out uh, in just a couple minutes here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Guys. we can wrap it up. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. Let's, let's. I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, it's yeah, been, hour and a half. So yeah, it's yeah. been fascinating. Is there anything uh, before you got to run there? Um, I I kind of whipped through you guys uh, your stuff on the intro there. I didn't want to. Uh, take too much time in there so do you want to talk about what uh where listeners can track you yeah down? and a lot of your work i know um andrew you're blogging at the huffington post and all this i read a lot of those before the the show so there's a lot of good stuff out there you guys are doing yeah david and i uh co-manage co-edit a really the only site of santa muerte news and, a, and analysis called skeleton saint and uh you know we try to actively post there so i think there's a lot of rich information i'm uh i'm updating writing my second edition of devoted to death for oxford press and uh david and i are planning to uh to collaborate on an entirely new book uh on santa muerte in the near future as well right on yeah and, and skeleton saint really is one of the only uh English language, you know, analysis of an ongoing analysis of Santa Muerte. So if people are interested, that's where to definitely check it out. And we also regularly post on Twitter. Um, I have conversations on Twitter, which is kind of how this this emerged. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, so, so we we utilize Twitter as a as a communications device. So that's right. We met on Twitter, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Andrew and I actually came together under uh, Morbid Anatomy. Well, I did a I did an interview with Andrew that uh, the folks at Morbid Anatomy in Brooklyn became very enamored with and invited us to come and speak. Um, and that's another interesting thing of the the kind of death culture coming up is Morbid Anatomy uh, in Brooklyn is kind of a hub of uh, it, different death culture. I don't know, it's death culture really. Um, hmm. it's, it's an interesting thing. That would be another place to check out for. Some of that, they, I know they they take uh, regular trips to Mexico City, so yeah, and visit the temples and that. Right on. Yeah. What about you, Red Pill Junkie? You want to tell yourself a little bit there? What about uh, things uh, where they can find me? Well, yeah, they yeah. can find me on Twitter. They can find me on Facebook. Obviously, they can find me on the Daily Grail, where is where I collaborate the most. Uh, 
Soon we will, uh, Greg Bishop and I will be releasing a book that, I mean, that is a compendium of his essays that he had, he wrote back when he was still a blogger for UFO Mystic. I helped him a lot, uh, with, by doing some illustrations for him and also for the, help him out with the, the design of the cover book. So the, I'm very uh, looking forward for, for the listeners of Agri America to, to <coughs> grab a copy. As soon as it's available, I will let you know. Beautiful. Well, thanks a lot. And that'll be interesting. Greg, awesome. Greg, awesome. Bishop is one of the, Greg Bishop is one of the, the serious ufologists who's looked into it for years. I agree. And has yeah, covered, yeah. It, um, covered it in a way that, you know, doesn't, Except easy answers. So that'll be exactly. a great book when that comes out. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, having us on. And thank you, Red Pill Junkie, for, for the idea behind this and, and the platform. It's It's been a real pleasure and, and I hope illuminating for listeners. Great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a bunch, guys. Enjoy what's left of the weekend. Yeah, you thank too. you. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. And big thanks to Andrew, Dave, and Red for joining us for another another exciting roundtable. Yeah, learned a lot on that one. I learned about your new death cult. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to make some crack like that. <laughs> yeah, Let me thanks. go home and set up my altar and... Sacrifice something? Oh, there was nothing about sacrifice in there. Sacrifice Zeus. <laughs> Do you take one of my cats and sacrifice it? <laughs> Start with the dog. Zeus has been trying to sacrifice me, man. He jumped at my head the other day. He'll eat you. Yeah, I caught him like this with my arm, and, and he ended up on my shoulders. Oh, it's scary. He's going for your throat. <laughs> yeah, he's going for the throat. I warned you. Yeah. Yeah, big thanks uh, for the guys for joining us. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Check out grimerica.ca slash support for all the different options on how to support the show. Keep us ad-free, uh, one-time donations or monthly subscriptions. There's pictures of T-shirts and the magnets and everything there as well. Um, and information on how to get all that shit. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, grimerica.ca slash news. Sign your friends up for the newsletter. And review the show wherever you can. Share the show wherever you can. Tell your friends about this motherfucker. Anything else? That's about it, buddy. Spam Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, at gramerica.com. Yeah. Send in your stories. Send them in. And your feedback. Or just forward all your other spam tool. No, don't do that. All right, guys. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
fronting. I know you want something classy, but sexy without no tongue ring. Steps to your girl, let me know it's your world. Straight from the gutter, but I shine like a pearl. Uttering, stuttering, north through the night. Didn't know this love could be so tight. Dímelo, 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 dímelo. Of the grime American goodies by the people. 